Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot in a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, stacks. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million hours. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help was like, it's like, I wish, I wish, that every time we dive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we dive in, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels I wish I had a time machine Wish I had a better rhyming speed Wish that I could speak to giants After climbing up a green stalk That grew from my lime bee I wish that I could spread my wings I wish that I had seven limbs That way I'd hold on to everything And laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things I wish I spoke fluent Spanish Dímelo, dímelo At least I kinda understand it Wish that I could throw the deuce like Gambit And get so large I could play pool with the planets yeah. I wish I was an astronaut I wish I knew more classic rock <laughs> Focused on myself You can help me wish But I would rather wish for help It's like, it's like I wish, I wish That every time we love it It feels just like this I wish, I wish That every time we do it It feels just like this I wish, I wish, every time we move and it feels just like, like this, feels just Hello like cats and kittens and welcome to another episode of The Debrief. Big news day today. I know the story that everyone is talking about, everyone is talking about, is the fact that James Corden's carpool karaoke has been canceled. Devastating news. The karaoke industry was forever changed by that particular show, the innovation of having those karaoke performance happen in the confined space of a moving automobile was truly a game changer um, in the space. And it's unclear what he's going to do next, what the next steps are. But watch this space. I will definitely be following up with more news on that front as it becomes available In some ancillary news, um, Tucker Carlson is leaving Fox. (laughs) Um, And, of course, uh, Don Lemon is also out at CNN. Now, the Don Lemon news, I think, I don't don't know why this mic is doing this. The Don Lemon news is less surprising. Um, It seemed clear that there had been some issues with him at the network for some time. There was a Vanity Fair piece that was written recently that sort of uh, threw him under the bus, as it were. Maybe that's not the right way to say it if, you've actually, if you're actually guilty of stuff. But it seemed like there were plenty of people at the institution who were willing to talk about numerous instances of sexism and inappropriate behavior in the workplace that combined with um, low viewership numbers, I think, really... Uh, uh, you know, wrote, wrote, he wrote his own epitaph on that one. Um, but the Tucker Carlson news is wild. Of course, it comes 
just days after news of the unprecedented uh, settlement in the defamation case uh, against Fox News from the uh, Dominion vote, voting systems, alleging that Fox News had knowingly lied about the Stop the Steal accusations that they had miscounted or that there was some fraud at their um, with their machines. Uh, the uh, settlement amount was just shy of $800 million, no small chunk of change. David Sirota reported last week at The Lever that apparently Fox is able going, going to be able to write a lot of that off, if not all of it off in taxes, which is interesting and a whole other different kind of a story. But there seemed to be a connection between the timing of uh, Tucker Carlson being let go and the timing of that settlement. Additionally, the Washington Post reported earlier today that the um, reason for his departure wasn't necessarily the liability exposure that was created by Tucker Carlson and others talking about how they had one inside position and what they believed internally at Fox versus what they talked about on air. But that in the discovery process, all of these private communications that Tucker had about management apparently ticked off management and it was his insulting presumably Murdoch or others that ultimately earned him acts. Others have been also pointing out that Fox News's legal woes aren't over. There is another defamation case by another voting machine company. Not sure if that has anything to do with it either. And now the most recent news is that <clears throat> it has to do with this other um, employee here. I'm going to, I'm going to pull up her name um, and some allegations that have been made about inappropriate workplace conduct. So all of that is what's in the news today. And on top of that, I thought we had a really great episode. Shama and I went for two hours. So we decided to split this up into two episodes and make today's episode public because it wouldn't make sense for people just to have the second part free. The second part is the real juicy bit where we go kind of line by line through the AOC David Sirota interview, which I know a lot of people have talked about, but I don't think anybody has given as comprehensive and thorough an analysis of why AOC's approach to politics is wrong as Shama. And it was really satisfying to hear her analyze why AOC's justifications for doing things like voting to crush the rail strike at the end of last year are completely bunk. So, this in this section in this section of the conversation, Sham and I, I mean, we've been having this conversation on and off for over a year now, which is what to do about the fact that there's a Democratic primary ongoing with or without the interests of the left, what she thinks about um, RFK Jr., the new candidate in the mix, um, whether or not there is any strategic utility to supporting a candidate like this whether or not there's any value to there being a debate. The Democratic Party, of course, has just announced that they are no plans. They have no plans to hold a debate. You know, should the left be agitating for such a thing? Can it, if it doesn't kind of tacitly endorse the prospect of the alternative candidates having an opportunity to contrast their perspectives with Joe Biden's, is that, you know, an endorsement of those candidates? Is that something that the left shouldn't be a part of? And if so, what does that really mean about how we're supposed to even look at the next year or so, given how much energy is around uh, these um, uh, national contests. So let's hear what you guys have to say about it all. Uh, Kevin, you're up first. 
Hello, Kevin. I can. You're a little bit muffled. All right, let me let me get off Bluetooth. Yeah. Okay. Kevin. Kevin, are you still with us? Kevin, I, we can't hear you at all. Hi, Bree. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh, what, man, what's I'm, on your mind? I, I apologize. But yeah, no, sorry. So um, a lot a lot to get to now. I wanted to focus on a bit of the 2024 stuff because I actually went to Marianne's um, Earth Day event on Saturday. So I have some thoughts on that. Um, but my my first thought, I just wanted to acknowledge all of your Gilmore Girls references. <laughs> I feel like you do not get enough love for that. Uh, <laughs> Personally, my my partner and I like that's our ambient TV. We we watch that all the time, and you know, I think I, just on a quick note, I think there is a lot to gain from those kind of cute nostalgic shows. I mean, whether it's the community feel, the the town hall. I mean, I even watched an episode the other day. Literally, had a train derailment go through the town. Yes, yes. Do you know the episode? Yes. I, so I just did a rewatch, like within the you know since. Since East Palestine happened within the last couple of months, and I think I tweeted about it because it was so close to reality. I mean, so the train that derailed on the Gilmore Girls was carrying like pickles, so obviously right. the stakes were different. But in terms of like the public response to it, the the you know who was going to do the cleanup, what was the town's responsibility, the kind of fault lines that emerged over the spill was very reminiscent of real life. Yes, completely. And yeah, I mean, it was it was to the point where I think they had the, the company, you know, was completely not liable because it was incorporated in Delaware and headquartered in Ohio. And mm-hmm. yeah, it was and anyways, for all for those who haven't seen it's very, it's very worthwhile. But uh, yeah, I mean, I wanted to talk briefly about like the 2024 work. I, I, I listened to your episode with Shama. I thought that was really helpful because as a, as a kind of interesting uh, experiment here, i I went to Marianne's uh, event on Saturday. I actually took my partner who hadn't previously known really anything about Marianne. Um, identifies as a leftist, but I, I thought it was kind of an interesting, you know, perspective. And I mean, I, I don't, I know, I know you mentioned you had gone to her DC event and I was, you know, I remember what you had said there and I was trying to kind of compare. And I mean, beyond what Marianne had just simply said, it, the crowd there interested me because I had never been to a Bernie rally or anything like that, but the mm. crowd there was really white. I mean, definitely, definitely pretty queer. I mean, had that Brooklyn hipster edge too, but like really, really white. And uh, I mean, we even kind of joked, like it, it had a little bit of that, like eat, pray, love energy where, you know, mm. my, my partner's uh, Asian American, so I think is more especially attuned to, you know, like that kind of like white women eat, pray, love thing where you know, they definitely run the risk of exoticizing some of the new age spirituality stuff that they, you know, follow. Um, but I mean, that that's really neither here nor there. I just think um, Marianne definitely went more spiritual than I had seen in past events and talks. And maybe that's because it was more of her crowd. But I think that's what we were really, you know, curious about, like, where, like, what is this coalition that she's trying to build? I mean, full disclosure, like, we're going to vote for her. I, like, we don't really plan to donate at the moment, but I think we are at least hoping for, you know, if she's going to take a lane, 
I think there are certain ways that she could even lean more into, you know, identifying with the kind of Gen Z young millennial and trying to build that multiracial working class coalition, et cetera, because I realize that, you know, the eat, pray, love wine moms are a big part of the democratic base, but it, it's, yeah, I, I, I think maybe that's what's missing right now. Maybe why a lot of people are, are still reluctant to figure out, you know, who she's going for um, and who, who her base really is. Well, you know, how do you, what, what would you recommend for her to uh, fill her rallies with working class, diverse, a working class, diverse crowd? And what, maybe you've gone to a political rally that was filled with working class, diverse people that could, that, that could provi- perhaps provide some inspiration or some lessons. Yeah. I mean, certainly part of it, I think it'll, it'll just take time. I mean, I really am. I, I for one don't think that RFK Jr. is going to get a swell of, of young people. I mean, like without going too much into his campaign, I think what really, what Marianne really did incredibly well on Saturday was one, she referenced Tortuguita and cop city, which no mm-hmm. other politician is doing. And then two, what my you know partner who hadn't known anything about her previously that really appreciated was Marianne keeps emphasizing rather than just fighting for you, blah, blah, blah. You know, I actually want to co-create with you. I realize that you are all better organizers, smarter, have been in this space longer than me. Mm-hmm. If I'm elected, I want to really have you get a seat at the table. And I think I think that's what I think a lot of people really resonate with. And I mean, it's I don't think it's translating to donations yet maybe in part just because like there there has been a chilling effect with a lot of the electoralism talk in the left and it's just not it's not hitting yet um but i think there is a lot of interest and i think there are a lot of young people who will just vote for her without donating because they do see that they identify with a lot of her domestic policies you know um so i I think that's maybe where i i think she will have a lot of success um you know yeah yeah i mean I, I want to be honest, my experience at political rallies is that they're all white. And I don't mean to say that to excuse anybody, but I think it is a little rich. And I thought this when Bernie was running too, to have some expectation that at somebody's rally at like 2 p.m. on a Wednesday, you're going to have anybody there except for people who can afford to not go to work. Right. <laughs> who have real flexible schedules and are like moseying out, you know, to go sit around. You know, you know what I mean? It's just not. The nature of a political rally, it just is what it is. Um, right. And it's a little different if it's on the weekend or later in the day. But working people are busy and people have childcare responsibilities. And there's just like a whole lot of reason why only like disproportionately elites go to political rallies. It just is what it is. So I don't I don't know that I necessarily think the political rally itself is the biggest like indicator but I think you're right about what the base probably is. The base has been exp- the people who have been exposed to Marianne, who know who she is, are also kind of limited in scope, especially given the kind of media coverage that she's gotten. So, I mean, I don't think that any of those things are wrong. I'm just a little. I'm. I guess I. I'm not sure exactly what to do with that information. You know. Yeah, and that's honestly on me. Too. I mean, I've never really been to political rallies. I've only been to a lot of labor rallies at, at school. Me and my partner, and I do organizing there. And I mean, maybe that's part of it. Like those just tend to be more diverse because those are the unions that are that are showing up in, in Manhattan in New York. Um, but, you know, if, if if that's the case, I, I think then that's really fine. I mean, I think what what I mean on, on kind of Shama's conversation, I, I think what we've 
really talked about ourselves and like some of my friends who are, I think will vote for Marianne too, is that I, I think it's, I think it's kind of a strong man to say that supporting Marianne will make it as if we're all under some illusion that she's like another messianic figure. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm 26. I think as far as young people go, we already spend 95% of our organizing, you know, political time doing local things, right? Mm -hmm. We're not at all distracted from that local. I mean, I'm literally doing labor organizing on campus every day and I can spend that other 5% of my time, you know, going to one event for Marianne and talking to friends and potentially donating in the future. I, I don't really see it as an either or. And in fact, I kind of do see it as um, something that we could have a lot of di like dialogue about and strategizing about how to use this. So I, you know, I've, I've actually been a little bit surprised by the, you know, a lot of the public figures on the left, maybe not Shama, but a lot of those who are like kind of obsessed with Bernie, you know, those kind of maybe leftist mafia, more majority report figures, mm -hmm. the writer off is unserious because I feel like you can't you you can't still be all in on the Democratic primary process, and you know be obsessed with Bernie still, but have all these faults from Marianne like that. Like at least Shama is is maybe yeah. trying to be more consistent with it, even if I kind of disagree with her on the illusion factor. Yeah, I kind of I kind of feel the same way. I'm I sometimes feel like I'm making arguments, or I'm perceived as making arguments in favor of one thing or another, but I'm really just trying to get at some consistent principle. And I've said this before when I had this conversation with Shama and Chris Hedges the first time, like if you're, if the answer is check out, there's nothing here for us, like fully commit to organizing and doing other things. Electoral politics just isn't our bag. Ignore them. I might not necessarily agree with that strategically, but that's like a consistent principle. Right. What I am taking issue with is this, well, we did it for Bernie knowing that Bernie was running as a Democrat, knowing that Bernie wasn't going to do a dirty break because he didn't do one in 2016. We fully knew exactly who he was from 2016, but feeling as though, and, you know, knowing that we didn't love a lot of his, his foreign policy positions. And yet there was still this feeling like it was good enough. And what Sean is saying is that Bernie is the floor and that people who are less are like less good than Bernie certainly don't deserve our attention and I see it as not a better than Bernie or worse than Bernie, but that if we don't participate at all, then you get nothing and anything over something in the, over nothing in the context of a Democratic Party is worth thinking about what we get out versus what we put in. And it seems to me that if we put in very little, you're not asking people to door knock, you're not asking people to give money. But if you get out someone who can at least beat up Biden a little bit on the debate stage and help to expose the contradictions of the Democratic Party then that's worth it. But it seems to me that people have are struggling with how to characterize the strategic goals of supporting someone in a primary with like an all an all out endorsement. I personally don't struggle with it. I haven't endorsed anybody. I don't think it's, it's confusing, but I understand coming from a institutional perspective as leader of an organization, you might feel differently. I mean, I also feel like as a leader of an organization, like, I would like to see a world where all the left media orgs and DSA and everybody released a statement that said, we're not, we need to learn more about these candidates before we endorse, but we strongly condemn the democratic party, not giving these to a primary, you know, we strongly support, um, you know, RFK stance on this, but not on this Marion stance on this, but not on this. 
Like to me, that's the, the only kind of engagement that I'd like to, for there to be people actively engaging what's going on in politics. Here's where Biden is. Here's where Marianne is. And here's where RFK is. Someone doing that kind of analysis. But I don't know. I've seen, I've heard things said about the candidates that are like, aren't really true. I've, it's, I've noticed that not very many people have even taken an interest in looking at what RFK's profile is before they've said a bunch of things that are kind of dismissive of it. And it, you can be dismissive of it, but it, I'm going to trust it less if you clearly haven't even familiarized yourself with it. And they're kind of missing what seems to be legitimate, authentic energy behind it, which could be useful, it seems to me, to some of our goals. So I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if it's if it's actually empirically true that 14% of, I forget if it was Biden voters or Dem voters overall are already in on RFK Jr. I think there's a way to harness that energy to kind of form a, an organic dirty break, you know, um, so that it's not even incumbent on those people themselves. And if, if all of a sudden there's this huge wave of just, you know, you're kind of RBN gray zone feeding into the Rogan crowd that, uh, maybe just hops into the primary, but is more than willing to hop right back out. I don't, I don't see how that's, how that's not helpful. In fact, that could even be a way for you're talking about unity between Marianne and RFK. Like that's a way to destroy the Dem pri- like party as we know it. If, right, if the right. way to have, like half the party voting against Biden and then half of them leaving, like we, like the, I, I can just see a way where we can coordinate that. It, it, the difference between a primary and a general is that it hurts the Democratic Party to vote for a relative outsider in the primary. The Democratic Party obviously is trying to coordinate Joe Biden. They're shutting down the primary process. Obviously, it hurts the Democratic Party to vote for the, someone other than their chosen candidate in a primary. It helps the Democratic Party to vote for the Democrat in the general election. Right? That's a very clear difference. <laughs> so... To me, I want to hurt the Democratic Party. I want to hold them accountable. I want to force them to the left. I want to register a message that I think that their chosen candidates are inadequate. And I can do that by acting in a primary. Now, sheepdogging in a general is 100% a real thing that will happen if you vote for the Democratic nominee who's probably going to be Joe Biden. And you might even argue that it's sheep herding if, if, let's say, hypothetically, Marianne were to win. And you think that she's going to bend the knee to the Democratic Party. Then you have a much stronger argument to just no matter what, under any circumstances, vote for the Democratic nominee in a general election. But, you know, and obviously people can just choose to sit out primaries. Most people do sit out primaries, which is why we always have such shitty primary candidates, (laughs) general election candidates, rather. But, you know, it's just it's no skin off my back. So I'm going to be doing something with the vote that I've been given to cause the most pain possible. And I just, I'm just really struggling with why we wouldn't be trying to get as many people to do that as possible to register our discontent with the Democratic Party. Yeah, amen to that. I'll, I'll hop up now. Some other callers get in. I'll just final note of that. I, I, I really think that this is a way to radicalize a lot of Gen Z. I mean, even in the past four years of them not voting, I personally did not vote in the Dem primaries. I, last time had really no interest in Bernie, got radicalized after mm. from 2020, et cetera. And I think people forget that, you know, I mean, a lot of 18 year olds don't really just weren't there yet in 2020 or COVID stopped us from, from voting. And then it was kind of mm. already over by the time it hit our state. So whatever people want to do with that information, like 
that's that's four plus years of a lot of radical Gen Zs who are looking for a place to put their energy in. And I, I, I don't think we should just waste that. So anyway, yeah. uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling in. Um, I'm going to say this. If you're in the chat saying Brianna wants to, you to give money to Democrats when I've never said that, I'm going to I'm going to keep I'm going to kick you out of the chat. OK, so if you want to say things that are true, things that came out of my mouth, feel free to say talk about those and criticize them. If you say one more time that I have ever told anybody to donate to anybody other than Bernie Sanders in my entire life, then you can you can say what you want to say, but you're not going to say it in this chat. So make your choices. You've been warned. All right. Um, Patrick, I feel like you were left last in the queue on the last call. So let me pull you up here. What's in your mind tonight? Uh, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay. Um, I, I saw Rising a couple of weeks ago and you did a story about TikTok. And I was just, um, it, it made me think of a question about how um, you personally think about the risks of TikTok and whether, mm. you know, it's worth it to keep it around. Like, I'm just a, a lay person, but, you know, it seems like, you know, TikTok is in bed with the Communist Party and, like, just having the risk of, um, you know, mass surveillance and, um, you know, uh, the ability to propagandize, you know, tens of millions of Americans in, you know, next generation of AI and algorithmic control. It seems like a, a large risk, and, and I can't really see any real reason why we should um, not ban TikTok, considering that risk. So well, I, I was get what else sorry. should we ban? Um, where where what social media doesn't have the risk of algorithmic control? Should we ban Twitter? I mean, we know from the Twitter files that the government was influencing policy and uh, censorship choices on that app. Should Twitter be banned? We know that the institutions like the New York Times regularly copy and print uh, State Department talking points. Should they be banned? Mm-hmm. Should uh, will the Washington Post be banned because they're advancing the interests of billionaire Jeff Bezos? Like what, what's the line between uh, influence that can, ha- can happen on an app and the standard for banning basically any and all media because it can have a propagandistic use. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe I, I'm just naive, but um, I, I, I think the line that distinguishes, you know, TikTok um, from the other social media companies mm-hmm. is that like a lot of, you know, the harms of say, you know, the New York Times or of Twitter, or, you know, Facebook, you know, they have had, you know, negative uh, outcomes on society and, and, you know, some misinformation has been spread um you know on these things um but i you know it seems to me that the you know generally these people are are trying their best um you know and there is a good faith effort made to you know control uh, misinformation um and um you know it seems like the communist party is in active uh you know has um negative intent and could you know we don't know the power you know, kids are already committing like suicide and stuff from, you know, algorithms, you know, as, you know, incidentally. And we don't know like what could happen if on purpose um, they're trying on purpose to have negative outcomes on society. 
And I'm still struggling to see how that's different from Instagram or any other app. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Instagram isn't on purpose trying to injure society. Do you have some, you know? do you have some evidence that uh, TikTok is intentionally trying to get American kids to commit suicide? Well, you know, um, not commit suicide, but there, there has been evidence that, you know, the TikTok algorithm, um, you know, has been, you know, leading people um, towards more uh, negative um, outcomes than, um, you know, the, the, like the possibility is there and it's controlled by an adversarial government. Well, I mean, there are a lot of apps and companies that aren't headquartered in, in the United States many of which are headquartered in governments that don't share our quote-unquote values or that are economically competitive with us, if that's what you mean by adversarial. We obviously have allyship with countries that I would argue we definitely should be adversarial to, like Saudi Arabia, and yet we don't have the same concerns about, what is it, Alibaba or some of these other kinds of corporations. Mm-hmm. So again, what is the evidence? I, I'm, I'm very reluctant to engage in just open open sort of um, uh, empire-based fear-mongering that says we need our king to rule and not their king to rule without some substantive evidence that that's what's going on here, especially given the censorship implications of basically being able to point to a boogeyman and saying we shouldn't be able to have this technology because the people who own it are the bad guy. Yeah. um, You know, it's it's not just about where... I'm not just saying like where the company is based, you know, means it, it's bad. It, it's just that it's operated by a, a government that, um, it, you know, has already has been proven to invest, you know, billions of dollars into, you know, propaganda already um, into the United States. And it it's, um, you know, I don't know. I, I was just wondering how, how you think about the risk, but it sounds like what you're saying is that, like it, it's really difficult to draw a, a line um you know, between the the risk of misinformation of our you know own social media companies and media institutions, and um, and TikTok, and and there doesn't seem to be a principle that would um, differentiate the two, unless it's been proven that they're trying to you know injure people. Is that correct? Well, what I know is this: I know that four um, members of the whatever it's called, the African Socialist Party, I'm sorry, I forget the exact name, uh, have been charged with conspiring with Russia. And the basis of the evidence is they've been promoting things like the Ukraine war is a bad idea um, and America is racist. And so many of the accusations back in 2016 that Russian bots had um, inappropriately influenced black Americans via Facebook accounts were Facebook accounts that said America does racisms to black people. And so if the argument is that China is influencing electoral outcomes by saying, I got to say true things about the American government, I don't know that the response to that is censorship. I think America should consider not doing the racisms anymore mm-hmm. and coming up with a substantive argument. I don't know yeah. that we should be giving up our First Amendment freedoms because nations do what they do. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be glib about it, but they interfere in each other's elections, and America is not excluded from that. 
No, I, I completely, you know, um, agree with you on that. Um, you know, and it's, and it's less about like things like election interference, but like changing, you know, like, like the QAnon phenomenon is just like a weird, like emergent thing of, you know, like people's information environments getting completely warped. And, you know, I, and that's like a real, in, you know, it happened incidentally of, um, the motivations of the platform. But, you know, during the trials, one of the interesting moments, this are the Twitter, Twitter, uh, TikTok hearings. There was this inter- interesting moment where one of the U.S. politicians was like, in China, kids aren't allowed to see this. But in America, you guys let our children see this, these horrible things. And in China, they're fed educational content. And in America, they're seeing trash. And the Chinese uh, CEO, the so he's not actually Chinese. He's from Singapore. But the TikTok CEO was like, well, we, you know, China sets its own standards. <laughs> China censors certain content for kids. Uh, China doesn't let people under a certain age use the app. America could do those things if it wanted to, but it chooses not to because you guys have different standards for freedom and, and stuff like that. So again, it seems to me, you know, is America, is America really invested in tailoring a certain kind of content for kids or preventing people under a certain age from using the app because it wants to keep them safe? Or is it just trying to do boogeyman stuff about China? It simultaneously is like concerned about child content when or content for children when it wants to like cancel PBS and defund public broadcasting and like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers. I mean, which is it? You know, it just seems like a bad faith argument. And I I hear what you're saying. I'm not saying that there's not a hypothetical world where like I've, I've observed a lot of like these this style of video coming up in my feed where. People are fighting. It's like, you know, uh, a white woman says the N word and a black woman, the clocks are in the face or uh, what a black man, you know, stomps on a white woman as she's waiting for the subway or, you know, there's all of these like people just fighting each other and saying mean things and racist things to each other and doing violence against each other. And it's all up and down my feet. And sometimes I think to myself, wow, they really want us to be mad at each other about stuff and forget that we're all on the same team and we should be having a working class coalition. Like, I definitely think that that's a vibe. I don't know that that's the CCP out to get us, but there's definitely a vibe. And I'm not on TikTok. That's just what I see on my Twitter feed, although I understand a lot of that originates on TikTok. But that that to me, I don't know. That that to me is a different sort of an issue. And a lot of that is homegrown content for a homegrown audience. Okay. Um, well, I'll go ahead and uh, let the next person. Uh, thank you for answering my question. Yeah, thanks for calling in, Patrick. Keep the faith. Yeah. Um, I said I was going to um, clarify my earlier uh, statement about this new theory as to why Tucker Carlson is out. This is from the New York Times, published uh, about an hour ago. It's titled, In a Lawsuit, Tucker Carlson is Accused of Promoting a Hostile Work Environment. Carson, uh, Carson's former head of booking, Abby Grossberg, said that male producers regularly use vulgarities to describe women and frequently made anti-Semitic jokes. Um, Ms. Grossberg, who was fired by Fox News shortly after she filed two lawsuits against the company in March, joined Mr. Carlson's team in 2022 after several, several years as a senior producer for Maria Bartiromo, another Fox host. Ms. Grossberg said in the lawsuit naming Mr. Carlson that male producers regularly use vulgarities to describe women and frequently made anti-Semitic jokes. On her first day working for Mr. Carlson, Ms. Grossberg said she discovered the office was decorated with large pictures of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi 
wearing a plunging swimsuit. She said she was once called into the top producer's office to be asked whether Miss Bartiromo was having a sexual relationship with the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy. Ms. Grossberg also said in her lawsuit that after she was coerced by Fox lawyers into providing a misleading deposition in a recent defamation case brought by Dominion Voting Systems and defending an offensive text from Mr. Carlson, his producers emailed the rest of the staff in, reg- in recognition of, quote, Abby Day and suggested ordering a staff lunch to celebrate. Fox has disputed Ms. Grossberg's claims and Mr. Carlson hasn't said anything publicly about the case. Uh Etc. All right, so that's another another potential reason. Chris, Chris Brown, what is on your mind this evening? Hey, hey, hey. Um, so first, as the as an L, I guess I would consider myself an elder millennial. Um, <laughs> I want to say that, uh, well, use the Gen Z term. We are smoking that Fox Pack tonight. <laughs> I can't, I ain't gonna lie. I was a little thrown off today. It seemed like everybody was getting fired. Like, I even called in my job. I'm like, hey, I'm, I still got a job, right? Because, geez, like, it was just like one after another. I think, um, I think I started watching uh, Rising today when I hopped on Twitter and I saw that Tucker was fired. I was like, oh, snap, though. This, this must be real. So, and it's kind of interesting with Tucker because, like, um, with Tucker, I think, he, like, obviously, no matter where he goes, he's built himself into this kind of political machine. Um, I think someone like Rumble would absolutely throw him the bag, like, throw him, give him anything and everything he wants or something like that. But, I mean, he could also do it on his own. I mean, you get nothing to really just start, like, a YouTube channel or something like that. Or you could do, like, a kind of, you know, you could do YouTube or and Rumble, like what uh, Russell Brand does and stuff like that. But it is interesting, though, because, like... What is Fox necessarily going to do? Or is it like, are they going to hand the reins over to Gutfield? Because I'm sorry, I just don't necessarily see it with him like that. Like, I think he works good, I guess, if you like on the five, though. But I think like his own, I mean, I don't know. I just don't, I don't really think that like works out well as far as Gutfield. And then you still got old ass Neocon uh, Hannity on there. But like, I think he's, uh, yeah, like, where are they going to go? And then I think Robbie was kind of talking about it, like, as far as like, no, excuse me. That was um um what's his name? Uh Saj, uh, uh Saga, Saga, mm-hmm. Saga. Uh, yeah, he was talking about like as far as like when they have to re up for their cable deals, like what is they gonna do? Cause you know, Fox at least had Tucker Carlson that kind of like helped them out and everything, but what's gonna happen as far as like cable models and stuff, since TV is like really, 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 really dying. So is it yeah, I mean, I do think that this is an unequivocal Jesse loss. Waters to the rescue. Oh, I'm sorry. That's funny. <laughs> said Jesse uh, Waters to the rescue. Oh, God. <laughs> that goof who went. Didn't he go to like a Korea town and just make a complete ass of himself? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people thought it was great. But yeah, he went to, I think he went to Chinatown and just asked people <laughs> like questions. And if they couldn't speak English, thought it was riotously funny. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, he... I, I do think this is an unequivocal loss for cable news, but I don't think is it, it is really in any way a loss for Tucker Carlson. Yeah. He can obviously hang a shingle anywhere he wants and earn as much or more money. I'm sure everybody and their mom is going to be throwing millions of dollars at him to come to their networks. CNN Plus, how much do they spend on CNN Plus? Whew. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, CNN Plus cost... Um, wow. Wait a minute. How much do they spend on it is what I want to know. 
Uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but that was probably one of the dumbest. I think anybody outside of that, like DC or that like TV bubble, would have told them that was a stupid idea. Because who wants to pay a subscription to a news channel? Okay, they spent a hundred million dollars on it. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, I think I looked it up earlier today. Tucker Carlson earns something like forty-five million dollars a year, something around the range of like half, 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 half you know, for forty-five, fifty-five, something around there. Mm-hmm. So if I were CNN and wanted a guaranteed hit and had a hundred million dollars to kill, they obviously should throw it at Tucker Carlson. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there are going to be a lot of people with money who I'm sure are trying to do that math. But you know whether their pride will allow them to, whether Tucker Carlson would ever go back. Because remember, he did used to work at both CNN and MSNBC at different times in his life. Yeah. Um, but I people who were like. Wow, this is great. Tucker Carlson has been felled. We don't have to hear from him anymore. Yeah. Like, mm, no. <laughs> I mean, he might just decide to pack it up and go knit in Maine for the rest of his life. But in all <laughs> likelihood, he's going to be very much out there and also now untethered, exactly. completely editor free. Exactly. And, and, you know, and then also like no like news constraints, no like journalistic constraints. Um, and so that could go one of two ways. We know from the Dominion lawsuit that he personally hates Trump, mm-hmm. that he hates um, he did not like the birth. The, sorry, the, I keep calling it birther, the, the stop the steal narrative. Yeah, that, you know, and and there could be a kind of refreshing, dare I say, world where he's out here willing to go toe to toe with him in a way that he couldn't when he was at Fox because Internally, the network made it clear that they felt like they had to ride the Trump train for money. Mm-hmm. And Tucker Carlson was so committed to earning Fox that money that he was criticizing other Fox News hosts for publicly criticizing Stop the Steal and Donald Trump. We all know we know all of this from the Dominion lawsuit mm-hmm. discovery. So a free Tucker Carlson might actually be a Tucker Carlson that's more adversarial to Donald Trump, but not necessarily it could be that he knows now that if he wants to start his own media enterprise, that he also has to keep towing the Trump line, that he has a relationship with Trump, and that he can milk that for his own personal benefit and not the benefit of Fox News. Yeah, I think there's a world where he could be free to continue to host people like Glenn Greenwald and Jimmy Dore and dabble and play with more like left populist ideas in a way that some people might say is, hey, kind of beneficial. But he might not. Yeah. And in terms of the hole that he left on Fox News, they could fill it with someone like Tucker, who, again, uses the platform to invite some some like contrarian voices on some anti-war voices on some exactly. and Assange voices on. But they might replace him with another Sean Hannity. So is the world better if Fox if Tucker Carlson is replaced by a Sean Hannity type and then he also goes off? And continues to double down and not be adversarial to Trump or do anything that might behoove the left. I don't know. Like, I I think time will tell who wins in the balance of this. All I know for sure right now is that cable news is losing and independent news is probably winning. Yes. And I think that's the reason why we have to smoke that Fox pack, just because (laughs) I think uh, this thing is done. Um, I mean, yeah, MSNBC really can't find nobody outside of Rachel Maddow. I think... um, Fox is going to have a very, very hard time um, finding somebody without, um, I mean, finding someone to fill Tucker's shoes. And then, of course, what is CNN going to do now since they're 
darling, they're the man of the hour, Mr. Uh, Mr. Don Lamone, is officially out. <laughs> He's officially gone. Which yeah, I think I think there will be almost zero impact at CNN for Don <laughs> Lemon's departure. You're, I don't man, think he Don, had a... Don Lemon worked there for 17 years. He deserved to be let known that, that they was going to go into another direction. He deserved it. You're not going to miss him on uh, New Year's Eve getting drunk and, you know, getting shit-faced with uh, Kathy Griffin and all that other stuff. Well, his- first of all, they all threw Kathy Griffin under the bus. They really did. Oh, that's So, funny. yeah, I do miss that, but that hasn't existed since 2016. <laughs> Moreover, um, I have no doubt that Don Lemon will continue to get drunk. <laughs> oh, he's, de- he's drunk tonight. He's definitely <laughs> he at the bar tonight, and up. <laughs> and that sometimes he will do so on camera. And, in fact, I suspect it will, again, since he is now untethered, to any institutional norms that uh, we would might even get a better version Maybe. of Don Lemon. Yeah. I hope they should let Don Lemon, you know what his c- career pivot should be? They should let Don Lemon host the Love is Blind reunion. See, this is what I was thinking too. As far as Don Lemon go, get out of politics, go into Hollywood or go into something like that. I was thinking like maybe he could do some, try to sign with E or something like mm-hmm. that on the celebrity stuff i think that's like don in his bag like not yes. politics the way absolutely something yeah like oh yeah the host of love is blind with don lemon oh he can say all the catty things about women and women's bodies he wants if he instead of trying to be somebody's journalist just leans into being joan rivers <laughs> exactly exactly you're joan rivers king just sit up there and you can talk about who looks too skinny and who looks too fat and whose eggs look like they're over rotten <laughs> You can have all of those conversations in the context of a red carpet review. Exactly. Yes, he could be Wendy oh, Williams. He would be a good host. He he would be a great host, and it, he couldn't be worse than Nick, Lash- Nick and Vanessa Lachey with their corny selves. <laughs> he would get to the oh, bottom yeah. of some things. Put him up there next to Andy Cohen. Let them kiki a little bit on somebody's set, talking about somebody's outfit and somebody's somebody's drama. This I will watch. <laughs> I will become the biggest. Don Lemon Stan in the world. Uh, yeah, I definitely think uh, I think that's definitely more his bag. And I'm just they, just trying to imagine him right now. It's like uh, talking to somebody like, "Girl, you are 36 years old and you're on a dating show with like 25 year olds. Like, you need to kind of like reevaluate your life real quick." Just saying. Just got okay. Now, first of all, there is nothing wrong with a 36 year old being on a dating show. Well, well, Was hey. not the most successful couple on Don Love Lemon Is Blind the oldest couple on Love Is Blind? <laughs> uh i can honestly i'm not getting the reference because i don't think i've watched love is Blind. okay the the most successful couple of this season okay was a 36 year old woman i don't know how old he was but they made a big deal of her being 36 <laughs> so well, that's right up don lemon's alley you know you know him well i am not saying this i'm am however saying that a young Younger gay relative of mine did once get hit on by Don Lemon in the gay club. (laughs) I'm not going to name names, but I know this to have happened for sure. And this person is younger than me. And this was quite a few years ago when I believe he was still solidly in his 20s. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. I'm just putting out there that our man, which is not illegal. There's absolutely nothing wrong and inappropriate about what he did. But I know he's out here in these streets. That's all I'm saying. 
Ooh, can I ask you a pop culture question? Um, I don't know if you are familiar. Uh, have you heard? Have you been seeing everything that's going on with uh, what's his name? Uh, Marcus Houston. No, what's going on with Marcus Houston? Oh well, apparently he was getting into some shit where um um he was a uh, guy. I guess it came to find out that his wife was nineteen when uh, they were dating. Oh, I like did 30. see that. Yeah, and then like I guess like everybody was kind of like riding his ass, and like for me. I told him, it was like, you, this is probably the time when you just shut the fuck up and let the news week kind of go, go away. Because it wasn't just that she is 19 years younger than him. Yeah. But, right, but he had said a bunch of stuff about how women his age have baggage. Yeah. And by baggage, he basically, when he described it, it was like opinions. Yeah. <laughs> life experience. <laughs> um, the confidence to push back against him in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, you, yeah you, it's it's called molding. It's not grooming. It's, <laughs> you can mold a woman different than grooming a girl, because that's just what the creepy predators do. Right. But you can mold a young girl into the a visual of the your ideal wife. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all, Brie. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I guess I did catch that and uh, blocked it from my memory. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, that was a, I was just curious if you did hear about that because it kind of was like I guess the idea of like older. Well, I guess it's, it. I wouldn't know this though, but maybe like anyone who's like gay in the chat is that like a thing or like is that like kind of like very normal like older gay men looking to date I guess like younger men. So like a well, guy. You don't want to like open up a whole can of discourse there, Chris. Oh. Oh, okay. There's All a right. whole bunch of discourse about you know, <laughs> and people go back and forth. A lot of younger gay guys say it's a very normal thing to mm-hmm. have, like, had their, you know, some of their first experiences with what? men, be with older men, and they see it as kind of a rite of passage. And wasn't that Giannis? Uh, what's the, what's the, the, the one, the gay uh, Republican guy? Who, I'm like, not sure you're talking about. Uh, what's his name? Yano uh, or Giannis Yapanopoulos? Yop, uh, well, no, that's Man, something Milo. different. I'm not, no, no, no. He said uh, some things about pedophilia and that's oh, why he got canceled. This, I'm not talking about pedophilia. I, okay. Not at all. And in any way am I talking about pedophilia. But a lot of younger, of age, gay guys just talk about how, for obvious reasons and, you know, being closeted and family pressure and blah, 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 that some of their first experiences are with older men and that that's just like, perfectly normal and that the dynamics that we are familiar with in straight relationships don't translate in the same way and we shouldn't be as judgmental other people say just because it's been normalized in the gay community doesn't mean that it's not kind of sketched that there are these like let's say men in their 40s who are dating all these you know young gay men in college and blah 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 but that's a whole discourse that i am not okay <laughs> uh in a position to opine on. <laughs> all i know is what the discourse is i'm not weighing in here on this one Got you, got you. All right. Thanks for calling in, Chris. Yeah, no problem. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Bide. Hasn't se- haven't seen Bide in the chat for a while. What's on your mind tonight? Uh, hey. Oh, 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 oh. Hey, can you hear me? I'm, can you come back to me and, like, uh, after a caller? I'm, I'm ordering food. Sure. Let's go to... Amanda, what is on your mind tonight, Amanda? Well, I'm happy to talk to you again. It's been a minute. It has, hasn't it? What have you been up to? What's on your mind tonight? Um, so one of the things that that has been coming up over and over, and I can't say I'm an expert, but this is about the election and the presidential and the primary and 
dirty break. Mm -hmm. I, I really would urge you to look into whether that's actually still possible because after 2016, several states changed their laws. So if you run in the Democratic primary, you cannot, even as an independent, run in the general. And I don't even know if it's possible mathematically mm. to have a dirty break because of these new laws since 2016, because of the Bernie 2016 campaign. Mm. Now, like I said, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an elections expert. But the last election I went through, because we were all talking about here on call-in, so how do you become a candidate? Because I was trying to talk people into looking into what is it to run for city council, for to run for your state house, what are the requirements if you wanted to run for Congress? So there's 50 different sets of laws and they're constantly being changed by each state. And so there's no uniformity, mm. but also these changes, I think, mean that mathematically a dirty break's not even a thing that you could do. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that really has interesting implications also for everyone who's telling folks to run just third party and as an independent. If you can't get ballot yeah. access, does that also, I mean, if there's, if you can't get ballot access, uh, in the in the general election, you know, what does that mean for anybody who would be running third party who obviously doesn't already right. have the infrastructure going? So what does that mean that we should invest even more in people running in the Democratic Party line and invest even more in them just winning the primary outright? Well, I don't know. I don't I don't know the answer to that. But I really it kind of disturbed me to hear Shama talking about a dirty break too, like it was something that was. And again, I'm not saying that it's not possible. I'm not I'm not smart enough or well read enough about these things. It just seems to me when I looked at the math that it might not be even possible to do anymore. So let's see. This is an article called What Happened to the Dirty Break? The Evolution of a Socialist Electoral Strategy. Since the fall of 2019, the Democratic Socialists of America has devoted the vast majority of its membership energy and financial resources to contesting elections as Democrats. Despite being caught back-footed by one of the largest social explosions in U.S. history, the Black Lives Matter uprising of spring-summer 2020, DSA has effectively doubled down on Democratic primary battles. Blah, 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 Eric Blanc, the author of The Dirty Break Strategy, where socialists contest Democratic primaries in order to accumulate the forces for a break with this capital party, has publicly distanced himself and his caucus from their public commitment to the need for an eventual split from the Democrats. The political and or character defects of individuals cannot explain this clear drift from earlier political commitments. It is the result of both the conjectural political tensions, their theory attempted to address, and most importantly, oh, sorry, conjunctural political tensions, and most importantly, the unrealistic historical and theoretical assumptions of the strategy. Blanc's 2017 essay, The Ballot and the Break, presented the dirty break as an alternative to the failures of both the clean break of the labor and social movements from the Democrats and the realignment strategy of transforming the Democrats into a social democratic party. For Blanc, the clean break failed to grapple with the specificities of the U.S. election system, single-member constituencies, first-past-the-post-elections, etc., condemning most third-party experiments to, at best, political irre irrelevancy, or at worst, the status of spoilers who allow the election of re reactionaries. 
Blah, 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 blah. Just tell me specifically. See, this is the thing I came across, too. It's really complicated because 50 different states have 50 different sets of rules that were enacted by 50 different legislatures that had different loyalties to different parties, right? So it gets ultimately super complicated before you can even get into what is is it possible, you know? And most of these laws were put in place since 2017. Um, yeah, this article is more about why DSA and Eric have kind of switched their strategies less about the viability technically of the strategy itself. It's a long article too. Um, wait, here's one from 2020. From International Workers League. Um, I'm gonna check. I think I still have the Google spreadsheet that I that I was compiling with all of the different information from all of the different states about what it takes to qualify to run for president in the states, and what the different rules are depending on whether you're with a party or you're independent, or you know, just depending on your state, it totally is different. Um, yeah, I reached out to someone from the Green Party for specifics about this at one point and got a kind of like, I'm not an expert on this back from the person I reached reached out to, but maybe I'll, I'll try again. But I do think it's very interesting that, you know, I'm, I'm really not trying to be funny. Okay, you know the same way that I get pissed off when people are like, organize. Oh, yes. And that's it? <laughs> For me, like this, oh, I hate R RFK. I hate Marianne. Uh, you're an idiot for thinking that uh, the president is going to save you. You know, like, I feel like that's the same thing. You're just basically telling people not to do stuff. I'm not interested in telling people not to do stuff. Unless you have a really good reason. Like, what's what's the downside of, of people doing stuff? I think the more stuff that people do, the better. Yes. Do stuff. Yes. Do stuff. You know, like, <laughs> like the, the primary is happening either way. So, like, I, I am, like, I would love it if someone were like, let's recruit a third-party candidate. Let's recruit an independent candidate. But if they're going to encounter the same obstacles as a dirty break Democratic candidate, well, why are we only mad at it? Like, why are we only bringing that up in the context of a, um, you know, an RFK Jr., Marianne, but not bringing it in the, up in the context of a fictional independent candidate who nobody has recruited or run. I ask every single, every single time this conversation happens, I ask whoever I'm talking to to also let me know if there is some independent candidate I should be focused on talking to who they would like me to help recruit. Let's run XYZ person. And there's never an answer, right? So I'm not choosing this other strategy. I'm just like, there's nothing no, else no, here. No. Yeah, you no, know? I'm not saying that you are. I, I'm absolutely not. Because I think I actually appreciate how you do lay out all of the different options. I just wanted to put a little flag on this one and so that yeah. we're not, we don't get deeper into the process and everybody's now talking about a dirty break that's yeah. not even possible. That's all. Yeah, no, I think that's completely fair. I would love, look, I... <laughs> I, I just think it's a non-controversial statement to say the world is better off if someone who's not named Joe Biden wins the Democratic primary. Oh, I'm right on that train. I'm so, with you. I'm for sure. Let's go. So I don't know. Like, I just I don't need much beyond that. To, <laughs> like, to me, I, 
just wish I wish that every leftist media channel that one would turn into was explaining why under no circumstances should you vote for Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. I would love that. Just a little message discipline among all the left shows that say, hey, whatever you think about Marianne or RFK Jr., seems to me that we obviously shouldn't be voting for Joe Biden. And if this is one of this is a a stupid way, an impotent way, a relatively meager way to register our discontent with the Democratic Party, it's a way in the absence of other ways. Let's go ahead and do it. Or in addition to other ways, let's go ahead and do it. You know, let's just give them a middle finger by voting for whomever write in a new candidate write in write in chris hedges right but just don't vote for joe biden in the democratic primary i i for me i i kind of wish that rfk or marianne would not run as a democrat because i think we really the dirty break needs to be with the people who are currently supporting the democratic party they need to be breaking with the democratic party well how does that work logistically uh with their ballot access mm, so in the primary in California, it doesn't really change anything because you can vote in the Democratic primary. The only primary you can't vote in in California if you're not registered for that party is the Republicans. So in different states, you're going to get a different mm-hmm. answer, which is why it gets so complex immediately. Like it just goes exponential. But this is all like just super te- technical wonky stuff. I really appreciate you engaging. No, I think it's it. important. I think it's important and you've inspired me to do some follow up. I would expect that greens would have some of this, you know, down pat and maybe yeah, we can get a good green party person too. to come talk to us about it. Yeah. Do you know the organization free and equal? No. Okay. So that's, um, um, her name is Christina Tobin. She has not the greatest, um, in my personal experience with her, she does, she has done some things that kind of shot herself in the foot. So she doesn't have a super great reputation, but she also, um, I think her dad was running for governor in Illinois as a libertarian and has, she knows a lot about ballot access is the, mm. is the end Free and Equal is her organization, and her name's Christina Tobin. Okay, yeah, I see her uh, wiki page here. Let me see if I can find her on Twitter and get in them DMs. Yeah, for sure. This is interesting. Thank you so much for that, Absolutely. Amanda. Thanks for the conversation, Brianna. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. All right, Carolina boy, what's in your mind tonight? Carolina boy. Carolina boy, are you with us? Carolina boy. Oh, oh. Okay. Carolina boy, I don't know if that was an accident or not, but I'm going to come to Bide while you sort that out. Bide, what's in your mind tonight? Uh, Hey. Are you ready for us? Yeah, I'm ready. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, cool. Uh... Yeah, sorry. I just had to get some uh, barbecue. It's been one of those weeks mm-hmm. and it's Monday. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, one of the things I was kind of fascinated with Kashama today when she was speaking is I started to realize that um, the, I guess if I could kind of like steel man, I don't want to like steel man her argument, but I, I think there's there's some real uh, teeth to it. Um, sure. If 
that makes sense. So I think one of the reasons why socialist alternative, uh, there was a, there was a, a time when you were kind of questioning her on uh, what seemed to be a possible contradiction between her sort of seeing the political uh, utility of supporting Bernie Sanders versus the political utility of putting uh, support behind someone like RFK Jr. or Marianne Williamson. And some of the reasonings seemed pretty similar as to why she would, well, some of the reasonings as to why she would support Bernie, you would think would carry over to why she would support Marianne and RFK Jr., right? Like the spoiler effect that they can have on the primary, the uh, pushing the narratives further to the left in certain areas. Uh, but when she was talking about how social, how her job and the job of socialist alternative was to not lie to people, I think the the degree to which sometimes we talk about putting our resources behind one candidate or another in a primary in particular, uh, it applies to a primary as well. I, I think the potential downside of that. Bye. Uh, uh, your reputation for sort of getting it right. Um, getting what right? Getting when you put your support behind somebody. What does uh, it mean? What do you mean to putting your support behind somebody? Well, when it comes to like socialist alternative endorsing Bernie versus not endorsing Marianne. Well, I don't think that I asked anybody to endorse anybody. Oh, I'm not, I haven't I'm not endorsed anybody. Anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not saying that you were, but I am so, saying that. Oh, go ahead. So if, if the question is whether or not social alternative should endorse anybody we don't even need to have that debate because that's not something that i asked for and don't need like a, a you know discussion about why that wouldn't be a good idea my my argument is much narrower than that well then what would the maybe i'm i'm, I'm missing it then what would the the argument be if it's not that shama sawat and she can make a decision. Socialist Alternative is a democratic, you know, a different kind of organization that can make its own right. decisions about what they want to do. But that right. Shama Sawant could conceivably endorse the political strategy of voting for someone not named Joe Biden in the Democratic primary. Of saying it would be useful for the left to get behind a non-Joe Biden named candidate to try to court, some, maybe even court a candidate like that and push them to embrace certain ideas or platform components that would straighten them, push them in the right direction, push them in the upward direction and commit their votes in the primary to them as a consequence, even making clear to their membership that they should not support that candidate in a general election. They could also say, use their platform to advocate for debates to say that the democratic, that no one should vote for a Democrat in the general election. If they aren't allowed to, if they're not willing to hold debates to start a pressure campaign to get, the Democratic Party to lift its decision on not having debates. All kinds of things like that come out against the choice of these various polling groups to exclude candidates from its polling surveys, things like that. But to right, have but some the, kind of institutional yeah. backing across the left seems to me that would be advantageous. I think, yes, I think definitely the, the aspect of, the debates. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, just kind of stopping the democratic establishment from 
consolidating that power and having like a, uh, I guess, authoritarian control over what should be a democratic process. But I guess the, where I get a little caught up is with the primary aspect. Um, do you think it's enough to just, or I guess two things, do you think if you're pushing for certain policies or you're, you're not necessarily endorsing a candidate, mm-hmm. but if you're pushing, I mean, isn't you, aren't you sort of implicitly endorsing a candidate, I guess, like you're kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and you're, you're saying we want them in there because she or he is going to talk about uh, Medicare for all. They're going to talk about, uh, you know, this or that policy, et cetera. Is it endorsing a candidate to say that we would prefer a candidate have access to a debate that brings up issues that are no. that we share? No, not that one. Not that one. But I do think that with Marianne, I guess here here's what I'm a little worried about. And I look, I'm I'm like I I agree with your strategy. I'm just trying to find I'm trying to really identify the reluctance that some people have behind it. And I'm trying I, I I'm not quite totally convinced that there's not there's not some there there, right? But but when it comes to uh, well, maybe it makes sense if I say you know like with Bernie, even if he has very similar policies to Marianne, or let's say Marianne has similar policies there too, I think there is something to Bernie having called himself a socialist that may have put that uh, endorsement or put him over the edge as far as like receiving an endorsement from socialist alternative. Like, you know, everyone has like a point to where the, uh, the candidate becomes, has enough of the qualities or enough going for them that it's worth sort of putting your weight behind them. Right. I, uh, Look, if if your if your crucial issue, if the issue that like you can get behind a candidate is whether they identify as a socialist, that's your prerogative. I personally am of the view that having someone who is as stridently anti-war as JFK Jr. RFK Jr. was as stridently. I mean, yeah, he could be lying. We'll see over the course of the campaign how consistent this messaging is. But who, as a stridently um, anti-intelligence organizations, who is saying we need to like defund the CIA, um, and who also is a stridently pro-environment and openly calling out Joe Biden, and Marianne, of course, has openly called out Joe Biden on these environmental issues as well, um, is more important to me than whether or not they identify as a socialist, I, and is yeah. worth. Kind of boosting, at very least, in the context of a democratic primary. So I, I, I understand that perspective. But one of the reasons why I would say I'd rather they identify themselves as a socialist is because they kind of, they kind of back themselves into a corner where you have to at least discuss. Okay, what does socialism mean? The problem I have with somebody saying I'm for the environment. Or just by going the, by the fact that like these people are purporting themselves to be for the environment. Well, wait a minute. Themselves. RFK Jr. has a 30-year career okay. as yes, an environmental yes, yes. lawyer. Uh, so I'm going to be on. Yes, yes. So I'm not saying RFK Jr. or Marianne uh, Williamson are 
inauthentic in what they purport to believe. No, I think it's perfectly legitimate to ask if someone's authentic or not. I think we definitely should be hyper aware of that. I'm just saying with the RFK and the environment, just I would give him more benefit of the doubt just because the depth, the same way we gave Bernie it's benefit of the doubt because of his 30 year career. I would similarly give him benefit of the doubt in the context of the environment. That's all. Which which I think is 100% fair. But isn't it easier then to weaponize for a candidate who does not deserve that benefit of the doubt to see where the conversation is going and see that they have to posture themselves as being for the environment while not giving a fuck about the environment, while being completely inauthentic? I mean, look, a lot of the people who ended up supporting Medicare for all are people like fucking Kamala Harris and all these people who came out, yeah, we're for this, we're for that. But really, they're just co-opting the conversation based on the policies that were saying uh, that, that they knew people wanted without any real in, uh, intention of doing it. How did what that I go like for Kamala Harris well, in, the, you know, in the Democratic she's primary? She's vice president. Right, look, but she's I, the vice I, president like, because I, Biden went and picked a black woman. And, she did not. Course, she, wait a minute, Biden. Wait a power. minute, Biden. You know, did like she convince anybody? Did she convince anybody in the Democratic Party that she was authentically for Medicare for all? Maybe for a moment. I don't know. Did, did she pull I voters? Did a woman for whom not a single Ooh, American voted? A Wait a minute. Did it? Did a, okay, did a woman for whom zero Americans voted because she dropped out of the primary early mm-hmm. seem to convince voters with her little routine at the debate? where she raised her hand saying she wanted to get rid of private health insurance and then put it back down, convince mm-hmm. people that she was authentically for Medicare for all in a way that was threatening to Bernie's movement. Did Kamala Harris? No. But did Elizabeth Warren? Elizabeth Warren did. also won zero states. Th- but, but Elizabeth Warren, in not dropping out at that time, I mean, we have to, we have to look at, I mean, you, you were on that campaign, so you know, like, that there were some people who were more in the wait. So, like, so what? What is what is your argument here now, Biden? Because it feels like it's shifting uh, well, a little I'm, bit. Yeah. Well, well, what I'm just trying to say what I'm worried about, and you know, you're better at articulating these arguments than I am. But what I worry about is, um, we we have to have some. I, I think there's space here for some kind of like, um, almost like authenticity tests. Or hard lines. Okay, so what's your authenticity that... test? This is what I asked Shama too. What is the line? Because I'll tell you what. Well, that's why I'd like I don't to think Bernie Sanders. Yeah. For me personally, for for yeah. for just saying Bernie Sanders to me, I think is less of a standard than like a vibe. I I think you're 100 percent correct. But what are the things that make that vibe? I do think the consistency and the track record matter, right? Like I think Bernie Sanders having said what he's been saying in some shape, form, or another, pretty much for his entire political career, gave him a lot of credence. I think RFK Jr., for a lot of those reasons, is a very attractive candidate in a lot of senses. I mean, Mm -hmm. like, there's a lot of... I also think, in some weird ways, like, the vaccine, anti-vaccine stuff to me is, like, super cringe. But the fact that he's willing to say just some wild shit like that in 2023 makes me kind of believe him more. Right, like I, I, it makes I, me yeah, feel in that like Trumpian way. Of a liar, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's in that weird Trumpian way. But I, I do think, uh, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying, uh, you know, ultimately I agree with you and how you're approaching this. I do think that part of this conversation should be some of those standards because I, I guess on a, 
if you broaden the scale out or if you widen this 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 uh like strategy out far enough and maybe it's just me seeing this but it starts to seem like uh the voting for biden versus trump argument in a way i know it's it's totally different because it's like a general election and everything but the the idea of like picking the lesser of two evils does some Someone okay, but to play, even if you're not picking it. Say out, you say out I mean? loud. Explain in words why lesser of two evilism Ooh. in the general election context is a bad thing. I obviously agree that it oh, is, but I, 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 yeah. but I want you I, to explain, like, why? Why is it a bad thing? Why is? Why are we still upset about it? I, I think it's just because. I, I mean, for me, it's not going to be like a great reason. It's just like I don't like the fact that I was like, well, I have to vote for Biden over Trump. It's just. You know, it, it, it's like a fear-based politics where we end up being stagnant and then decades go by and we wonder, how did, how are we still fucking here? How has nothing changed? And that's all. You know, it's, it's I'm really not like, uh, I just, I, I feel like we have this moment. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to last, but it feels like we have potentially some momentum. And I, I, I guess what I'm worried about is knowing how good these motherfuckers are at stopping momentum by either lying or posturing themselves to believe things that they don't actually believe in. How do we, I just don't want them to be able to, 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 to stop it. And I do wonder sometimes, like, I don't know. It just, you know, when you hear, maybe I got to learn more about RFK and stuff, you know, this RFK Jr. But I don't know. That's all I'm worried about. And I don't, I don't have the best, so uh, I, w- like I, I would say I would say by that the reason that the lesser of two evilism in the general election context is such a bad idea is that it guarantees that no matter how bad a candidate Democrats back in the primary, no matter yeah. how much they rig a primary, yeah. that Democrats are going to fall in line, that voters are going to fall in line and ultimately never punish them for their bad behavior. And that we're going to increasingly get more right-wing Democratic candidates, and the right is going to shift right, and the left is going to shift right, and we end up with this ratchet ratchet to the right cycle that we've been in for the last 30 or 40 years. That's yeah. my argument. That has consistently been since episode 10 of this podcast and my argument with Noam Chomsky, my frustration with lesser two, of two evilism, that there's no off-ramp. That there's always somebody bad on the Republican side. It's always Trump. It's always somebody worse than Trump. They get worse and worse because, of course, they can get worse and worse because the Democratic Party is basically chasing them because every year we're told we have to vote for them no matter what. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But there's a different dynamic in a primary. In a primary, that's our opportunity to say, I'm not, I'm not guaranteeing anything about whether or not I'm, I'm going to support this person in a general election. All I'm saying is I have an opportunity in this moment to pick, to, to influence. I'm able to go into a team I don't even play for and pick their starting lineup. It's a strategic. I'm allowed to go Trojan horse inside a party I don't even belong to, an ideology right. I don't even subscribe to, and pick their players. And but then I can not, choose to do what I want to do in a in general election. But at least I have the ability to ratchet stuff back to the left as they're ratcheting things to the right. And that's yeah, just a tr- I, yeah. strategic choice. Well, I, I agree with that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. But how much are we actually picking the starting lineup for the primary? Well, that's, you got three where, options. 
but that's the thing, right? So how, if we have three options and we're not the ones actually picking them and are we well, you could pick them. engaging in the same right well, no we, we could pick we, them we democrats no wait a minute the yeah. left instead of kvetching and moaning for the last four years and talking about who's a real leftist and who has a blue check and all the dumb bullshit it's been doing for the last four years could have been seriously thinking about running and backing a candidate whether it's matthew ho or right right you know whomever i don't give a shit right. but it hasn't right. done yeah. that so to yeah. the extent that there's not another option, don't be mad at me. I've been desperately trying to get people to have this conversation for at least a year. Who in our dream fantasy world, I invited RBN last, last summer on to talk about this. Yep. Who in our dream fantasy world would be our left candidate? And people yep. couldn't stop complaining about Marianne, who had not even announced long enough yeah. to do <laughs> affirmative thinking on the subject. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So don't blame me that there's only three people. I didn't make this world. I tried desperately hard to get people to think outside of the box. Nobody had any energy for it. They just want to say negative bullshit shit and vetch and vetch and vetch. And now here we are. So all I'm laying out is what the opportunities are in front of us now that we're here. And notice that I'm not even bringing up Marianne because I know how triggering Marianne is for everybody. I'm talking about RFK Jr., Right. I didn't bring up. You see, even with even with Shama, she kept bringing up Marianne, and I was like, I'm talking about RFK Jr. Everyone's made it very clear how they think about Marianne, and you're not going to trick me into defending Marianne. You guys can go do that on your own time and argue about Marianne. I've done enough arguing about Marianne for a lifetime. Yeah. First of all, so I'm talking about RFK Jr. None of us. We're not going to blame you or be mad at you. That's that's impossible in this space. It feels like, but the. You know, look, I, I agree with all of that, okay? I really do. And there's, there's this aspect of the left that we all know, or whatever this fucking online left is, which is, it's so self-defeatist. There's just, it's all just, um, it just feels like shitting on stuff and not coming up with anything positive. No one has a plan. It's just like, d- d- uh, shit on it, shit on it, shit on it. And that, d- that gets us nowhere, right? Now we're all fighting each other, like you said, over stupid shit on Twitter, then stuff that matters. However, I, I do think that part of picking the correct candidate, and one thing that I do like about whenever uh, Shama Sawant talks, and I'm not even like a Shama Sawant stan or anything like that. I know. Yes, you are. Everybody is. Just own it. Look, she's cool. (laughs) I like her a lot, but like, I don't like follow her like that. I, I swear to God, I just, I'm just listening to what she's saying and some of the vibes I'm feeling. But I do, you know, part of me does feel like if, if what the effect is, is to spoil the primary, is to just make it as fucking hard, make Joe Biden's life as hard as goddamn possible. Mm-hmm. To just make this motherfucker come out the basement and speak and for mm-hmm. people to just see that this is, this motherfucker ain't got it. He ain't it. I'm down with that. I think we mm-hmm. should be very explicit with that. Mm-hmm. I do not think necessarily, like to the extent that we're, supporting other candidates in the primary I, or, or, or allowing space for them, I think we just have to be very clear about like, why? I completely happening. agree. And, and, and you have been clear with that. I, you know, I'm not saying you have not, but I do th- look, picking the right candidate is going to require us to really espouse the right principles to people too. <laughs> to sell them something that's bigger than just this one fucking election, to sell them like, where, what is the, re- like, how do we make steps towards the actual revolution that we want? How do we change the society? And I like how 
you know, some of those principles that Shama was showing is like, I think long term that ends up helping you. The, the fact that like people can actually trust the words coming out of your fucking mouth is super helpful. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's what's going to get some of the people who can be got and brought over to our side is that we don't fucking lie to you. And we don't have to because we're not this fucking capitalist system that depends on like doing that, that, that re- relies on maintaining the, the illusion. We actually like factually and, and, and like philosophically we win, but it's a matter of like, how do we protect the integrity of that while also making the strategic moves, which this is the one to make honestly is, is the, you know, the primary move. Look, but I just don't think it's that complicated. Just say it. Just be clear. Like yeah, no one's yeah. preventing anyone from saying, I think people shouldn't vote in a general for Democrats, but I think it's strategic to vote for someone in the primary. Like I say it every day of my life and I promise you it's not that hard. I think people are trying to make this harder than it is. I think Shama's point and the one you're making right now about not wanting to give people false illusions is a very legitimate one. So don't give them false illusions. Just t- don't give them false illusions. Be very clear about the limited action that you want people to take here and why. Hmm. That's it. Just do it. We don't have to talk about it for 30 minutes. Just do it. If you don't want people to take to be sheep herded into the Democratic Party, say, hey, guys, don't be sheep herded into the Democratic Party. Honestly, like, why is this? Are we not trusting the cognitive ability of the average voter or listener to Shama or, you know, participant in worker strike back? To understand, do vote primary. No vote general. <laughs> like, why is this really so hard? Who is this imaginary person we're thinking of who is so, like, mummified that they're not going to be able to keep those instructions straight? I mean, have you seen what's been going on on Twitter? <laughs> I mean, that's fine. But, like... I don't know. It's just, it, it's exhausting. You know, sometimes people are just trying to be too smart by half, I think. And look, it's, yeah. it's, it's like with, it's like with force the vote. Oh, it's only all these big brains came along to give you 150 reasons why you couldn't do a thing. Right, right, right. When they could have yeah. just tried to do a thing. Hmm. Just do the thing. I saw someone who was new neoliberal tears who was saying, well, are there consequences if you have to vote, if you have to register Dem? Aren't you giving up your opportunity to vote for a Green Party in general? No, that's not, no. You can vote. Anybody can vote for anybody in the general election. It's a general election. You're giving up on your ability, I think, to vote for a, a in a Green Party primary. But the Green Party typically, in my understanding, doesn't have primaries. They just they pick the guy or the gal, and that's who it is. Or they do it like on a party level internally or something. But no one's like voting for Jill Stein versus whomever else might have been running against her in 20, uh, 2016. Right. So you can still there's nothing precluding you. And, and obviously, there's a lot of states that are open primary anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I was a registered Democrat in 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 um, New York because New York has regressive laws and one of the worst voting laws in the country. And you have to it has closed primaries. I've, I voted for Bernie Sanders as a Democrat. And then I took my ass down to my little local elementary school <laughs> on 7th Avenue. And I voted for Jill Stein. Right. Easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I mean, I, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And look, I, I, I'm sure a lot of other people want to talk and everything too. I still have to mull around. There's something, I'm just trying to figure out what's, 
there's something. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. There's something there that I'm trying to figure out as to what is, uh, like, I mean, strategically, that makes sense. As long as we're explicit about it, then who gives a fuck? That makes sense. So, all right, whatever. Let's just do Look, that. I'm, I'm open to hearing the downside. Just like I said with Force the Vote. Right. I'm opening right. to open to hearing what this horrible downside is of us just doing this thing. But, yeah. like, I don't know. I'm suspicious of when there's all this negativity around stuff where there's, like, maybe not that much upside, but there's definitely, like, zero downside. So, like, why not? Right. I would like, if someone really does know the down, I mean, I don't know, all the downsides I I hear. I mean, my biggest thing is the downside potentially being like uh, uh, co-op, being co-opted from people who actually don't want the policies that you want or, you know, something like that. But I mean, uh, if you can explain to me how RFK is going to co-op me and brainworm me into something I don't want to do. Right. You know, I, I'm I'm open to hearing it, but like, <laughs> look, the, the other thing, and I said this to Shama, like, we're also pretending that we live in a world where like most people aren't going to vote for Democrats anyway. Most Bernie voters voted for Biden. Most voters are going to vote for the Democrat because as much as I think that we should just tank the whole thing and throw an election, if it means, you know, sending a Democratic Party message, other people feel differently. They feel like there's basic rights that need to be protected. And I respect those feelings. Whatever. Most people are going to vote for a Democrat. So this this world where we're pretending that like, well, if we say something, if we give too much credence to these these folks, it's going to mean people over invest in the Democratic Party. Like, honey, these folks are in. They're locked in. Like, (laughs) they're not listening to us. They're going to vote for Democrats. Like most people are going to vote for Democrats. And the people who know better than than to do that are already listening to these shows and aren't going to get brainwormed by anybody. Yeah, that's fair. I, 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 I hope that stays or that, that, that trend continues as conditions get worse. Um, but who knows? I, I, I think it will. Um, but yeah. Okay, cool. Well, uh, appreciate it. I'll let some other people jump on the call. Uh, All right. Bye. It's good to hear from you. Enjoy your barbecue. Yeah. Thanks. Mm. Mm-mm. Okay. Right, bye. <laughs> Keep the babe. All right, Samuel, what's on your mind tonight? Hello, you hear me? Loud and clear. Hi, it's wonderful to talk with you again, Brianna. It's, uh, I called a few times like last year, but it's been several months. But uh, I love the show. It's all been wonderful. I also really enjoyed seeing you on Russell Brand. Oh, uh, yeah. Brand is one of those people. I love, which I can never tell any of my lib friends or family members because it's just one of many reasons I'll be canceled. So <laughs> I sort of <laughs> secretly love Russell Brand. But I just wanted to say a few things, hopefully quickly. One is I just wanted to see if maybe you've thought about as a possibility having someone from the African People's Socialist Party as a guest and talk about, you know, how they've been persecuted and also like what they're all about, you know? Um, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I talk about the, um, I don't know what you want to call it, persecution of the four mm-hmm. um, members on the episode. I guess it'll be next Monday's episode because Shama's ended up being a two-partier. Okay. Um, I recorded okay. an episode today yeah. where it's like the subject of the episode, but not with a, 
um, a member of the group. If anyone has any contact, I think one of them was on the one that was arrested last summer was maybe on Katie's show. So maybe I'll ask Katie, Mm -hmm. but if anyone else has any contact information, I'd love to have it. That's great. Fantastic. And, uh, I wanted to say, I agree with you about a lot of, of what you just said about, I always say like, it's okay to talk to people as adults and to say things like, hey, maybe it would be good to vote for support this person, but it doesn't mean they're the savior that's going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. Like, I think people are capable of holding two thoughts. And I'm always really bothered by yeah this attitude that comes up a lot that like, we have to protect the dumb masses out there from getting the wrong message because mm-hmm. they're just going to fall for the, the trick, the grift. You know, everybody's a grifter and people are sheep herding. And I'm like, I think it's okay to just give people in general the benefit of the doubt that they're as smart as you are, which mm-hmm. <laughs> is like, it's funny how many, how often that's taken as like an outrageous statement, but mm-hmm. that's just how I try to go about things. And, um, and if it's okay, I would just, I'd like to just tell a quick story that involves Marianne Williamson. So I'm, I'm sort of bringing up the, like the incendiary name and I'll just say (laughs) for the benefit of the chat, I am 100% neutral on Marianne Williamson. I'm not telling anyone to support her or vote for her anything. I'm fully neutral, (laughs) but I figured I would just tell a little something that might be illuminating or interesting, which is that I have a very good friend who's also a podcaster, Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, who he and his friend Chava produce a podcast called Hi, How Are You?, which is the world's largest queer Talmud podcast. Mm. And uh, they have great fans. You know, the queer Jews are loving it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's uh, they've got great energy and they have people on authors about Jewish law, Jewish history, ethics, spirituality. And I will take a little bit of credit because I do, I do gloat when I call into Brianna. I'll gloat a little bit that last year sometime, maybe as much as a year ago, I started hawking my friend Michael and saying, you really should ask Marianne Williamson because I bet she'll say yes. I bet she'll go on your show. And this was before she had announced she was running again. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had both, you know, seen her in 2020 and found her very interesting and intriguing. And then also we're intrigued when we found out that she's Jewish, which not mm-hmm. a lot of people know. So we thought, oh, someone who's talking about spirituality and they're kind of a national figure. So I started pushing him saying, ask Marianne. And about a month ago, they did. Hmm. And her staff immediately said yes, said, like, just tell us the time. And I said, I told you so, (laughs) that she would go on your show. And so she did, and they interviewed her, and it was good, and it was interesting. I actually, Michael called me and said, what are questions I should ask? And I recommended a bunch of, like, kind of tough questions about Palestine and Ukraine. And, you know, they didn't didn't get to all of those. It was more about spirituality, right? Mm -hmm. And they said up front, this is not a political podcast. This is... um, this is about Judaism. We just think she's an interesting person to talk to about Judaism and spirituality. Um, but they did, uh, Michael did ask her, well, uh, what if you don't win the primary? Would you then go and run as a, an independent? And she said her response was, well, 
and you can hear this on the podcast if you if you if you anyone looks at it. But she says, um, well, what Trump said when he was asked that question was, it depends on how you treat me. Mm-hmm. And said that was a good response. That's so That's interesting because so when she when she said that to the RBN, you know, on RBN, they perceived that as her being kind of self-centered um, that like it matters how you treat her, but not how you treat the movement or her supporters or the left generally speaking. And they took that answer and accused her of being kind of narcissistic. Thank now I don't agree with that. I, I read no, it I similar to the way that you read it. Um, kind of like a tongue in, like a, like a wink, wink, nod, nod. To, I am not going to necessarily bend the knee, but I can't say it out loud. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I want to threaten the Democratic Party into treating me right or else they might have to face the consequences. That's how I read it. But I've been accused of being deeply naive for reading it that way and that we should really understand that as Marianne being um, kind of a narcissistic, out of touch person who uh, only cares about how she personally is being treated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's yeah. And I, I understand that as a case of like, it's also okay to give people the benefit of the doubt that maybe they're maybe what they mean to say is good rather than bad. You could give them benefit of the doubt. But anyway, I fully respect everyone's judgments and opinions about Marianne mm-hmm. Williamson. But uh, also after they posted the episode, some people liked it. They got mm-hmm. positive comments. They also got the inevitable, like, small wave of, like, a few really angry fans writing in and saying, how dare you do this? I'm so shocked. One of, you know, one of them literally wrote, like, a screed, like, she's a racist, uh, homophobic, blah, blah, like, just, just, like, rant of negative adjectives. And then said, I am so upset that you platformed her. Mm-hmm. And that was so perfect to me. I was like, oh, I see. Marianne Williamson was this obscure, little-known candidate coming out of nowhere <sighs> until she got the big break of appearing on Hi, How Are You? <laughs> that is what really put her over the top. I was like, this is so nuts. And it all strikes me as like, I always think of it as like cooties-based politics. It's mm-hmm. like... Well, someone dug up something bad about this person or they once appeared on someone's show. They were on they went on Tucker Carlson. You know, Jimmy Dore's bad because he went on Tucker Carlson. And then such and such is bad because they went on Jimmy Dore. It's all this like contagion of badness. Mm-hmm. And then if you like talk to someone who's like one of the bad people who's like been blacklisted, you catch it. Right. You like get the cooties. Mm-hmm. And it's so exhausting to me. And I feel like. uh I'm just very strange where I feel like I'm the only person who's like, I love Brianna Joy Gray and Russell Brand and I love Jimmy Dore, which gets me canceled with a bunch of people. And I love ContraPoints, which gets me canceled with the people who love Jimmy Dore. Mm -hmm. The one who's allowed to like appreciate what's good about all these people. It's like all of them are somehow radioactive to somebody for one reason or another. So at this yeah. point, I'm just yeah. venting, but I just wanted to see what you think about that and whether, I don't know, whether you have any thoughts about, I don't know, maybe talking about this subject. Maybe it's too abstract to kind of wrap your arms around, but to sort of say, why are we so obsessed with like finding who's the evil deceiver and who we need to 
ostracize and exclude and who's contaminated and who's toxic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, part of this, I mean, it doesn't, it's related to the conversation we were just having about, you know, Shama and the standards for supporting a candidate and Bernie and stuff. Cause I do think that part of it is because people were burned so hard by Bernie, right? Like people mm-hmm. feel like they've been diluted. They feel like momentum was stolen and all of that because of what happened with Bernie twice. Now to me, it's a little odd to kind of recognize that the ways in which Bernie failed while still kind of holding him up as a standard. That, mm-hmm. That's, it's a little weird with me. Um, Bernie fully didn't dirty break twice. Bernie has been talking about how wonderful Joe Biden is before, during, and after his campaigns. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I, I obviously was deeply committed to Bernie, and I have so much respect for him to date. But, like, I will be honest about <laughs> who he is, you know, and how he wasn't what we thought he was so or hoped he would be so the idea that that's the standard, but let me not backtrack. The point is um, that I think that people have been burned. So they're looking out, you know, they don't want to look foolish again. I think with Bernie, a lot of folks Mm -hmm. like take like the irony poison kind of like dirtbag left chabosphere. They, they put aside their cynicism for a second and were like authentically for something. And a lot of them, I think, came out of 2020 feeling embarrassed and, and sticky and wanting to distance themselves from any of that kind of like optimism or authenticity or sincerity, which, you know, emotionally I understand. So I, I do think that there's some of that. It's easier to it's easier to say, well, well, I'm not for that and I'm not going to get fooled by that. And I, I'm smarter than that when you have been kind of revealed as not smart enough or I won't say it was, I don't think it's a dumb choice to have backed Bernie, but like I lost, like I ended up with egg on my face or, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I was caught believing in something and they'll never, gonna, they're going to come up with excuses why they should never believe in anything again or try hard at anything again. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing with the left where, you know, we're in the middle of a crisis in an election season yeah. and all this. And most people last weekend spent their time talking about blue checks Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> you know, trolling Chris Smalls over his blue check. You know, yeah. I, you know I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, what do you think is causing it? Well, I mean, to 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 back up for a second to the the Bernie thing, just that specifically. I I I remember hearing the Chapo in twenty twenty where they talked about supporting Bernie, and it was very interesting. I mean, I'm not a huge fan, but I listen to it sometimes. I enjoy it sometimes. I thought it was striking how vulnerable they made themselves in talking about the hope Mm -hmm. they were putting into Bernie. Mm -hmm. And it really ran counter, of course, to their sort of image that they, Mm -hmm. oh, they're just like, yeah, the irony poisoned cool kids. And it's very hard to 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 make yourself vulnerable like that Mm -hmm. and then have it fail Mm -hmm. Um, or at least have it fail at least in some ways. And I think that people, people are so guarded and, and I understand that because I'm that kind of person too. I'm very, I'm very guarded in my personal relationships Mm. and my work life. If you can even say such a thing exists. Hello. You're also Samuel. 
Samuel? Oh, sorry, sorry. I think I accidentally muted myself. No worries. You said you also... I'm also a, a podcaster, just barely paying the rent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I guess it's like, to me, when it comes to like understanding the world out there at large, it's like you have to make yourself very vulnerable to like entertain other people's ideas and other people's perspectives, or you're just never going to learn anything. You're going to become kind of ossified. And uh, yeah, yeah, I I guess it's um, sometimes I try to, I try to reassure people like it's okay to think something crazy or it's okay to, it's okay to entertain a possibility and then have it turn out. It was wrong. That's not the end of the world. Uh, I I thought the vulnerability that they displayed was so beautiful. You know, it made the show. I I started listening to the show in 2016. And so so for me, so much of it was always like really fighting for something they believed in the anger. The Mm -hmm. cynicism was Mm -hmm. directed at an unjust system and Hillary Clinton and democratic party and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and near Tandon. You know, it was, it was purposeful anger and cynicism. And then that carried through in 2020, and there were these beautiful – by then there were more established podcasts, and there were these beautiful calls to action and expressions of sincerity, like really beautiful. And there was felt like there was this community. But then, I don't know, it feels – I don't know, it, it feels like everyone woke up the next morning after a hookup and are embarrassed, <laughs> you know, disappointed and – you're allowed to be yeah. disappointed, but disappointed in what exactly? We shouldn't be disappointed in each other. We can be disappointed in the Democratic Party or Bernie Sanders, but you know, it feels like it feels like sometimes these people aren't looking us in the eye. Like they don't want to look, they don't want to look their audience in the eye. But you know, like we're not the ones that you know, you know had the humiliating you. sexual experience with them last night. <laughs> it was Bernie or whatever that fucked them, not us. You know, we yeah. should still be all, all, in this, all in this together, and it doesn't always feel that way. Yeah, I agree. And I guess it's like what you have to say is like, it's okay to be mad that Bernie let you down, but you have to forgive yourself. I feel like there are a lot of people around who haven't forgiven themselves, and that's mm-hmm. kind of what's coming out. Yeah. 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 Um, I just want to say, like, I see, you know, I see a repeated comment that's like, the leftists aren't, you know, nihilists. They're just saying, we're just saying we don't believe in the Democratic Party. We don't want to act with the Democratic Party. Like, if you don't want to vote in the Democratic primary, don't, don't vote no. in the Democratic <laughs> primary. I swear to God, I'm not going to come into your house. I'll just stop out and force you to. Like, you really don't have to keep saying it. If you think that voting, casting your vote in the Democratic primary is mutually exclusive to all the other kinds of organizing that you can do. And you just absolutely cannot bear it. I, I like, I really want for you to respect your own feelings and not do it. You don't need my permission not to do it. Just don't do it. You don't have to do it. No one's forcing you to do it. And I hope that with the, all the time you spent the hour or so, whatever it was going to take you to vote, that you really put that time to good use because you're telling me that you have limited resources. These things are mutually exclusive. So Godspeed. Like I, I respect that. Just don't vote in the primary for everyone else. I'm just suggesting that it could be a fun middle finger to the Democrats 
to vote for the one of the people who they're clearly trying to keep off the debate stage. But like, if you don't want to do that, you're still a good person, and it's going to be okay, and you don't have to do it. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, thank Samuel, you. thank you so much for calling in. Thank you. Thank you for everything you're doing and all the work you do. We love it. And keep the faith. Keep the faith, Samuel. All right, Hannah, you have had a lot to say in the chat. So what is on your mind this evening? Hi. Um, I listened to your show today, and I'm curious why you're trying to lower the bar. Um, I don't think it's lowering the bar. I think that there are things that I can get out of something. And if I can get them, I'll take them. And if sometimes there's going to be more things I can get, sometimes there are going to be fewer things that I can get. Sometimes, you know, there are going to be things that I can get from, let's say, RFK Jr. that I couldn't get from Bernie. So there are fewer things, but there's more important things. Or there are fewer things, but they're significant things. And it's a mixed bag. And I definitely understand saying that at a certain point, what you're getting is so minimal that it's truly not worth it or that it's somehow... It's like degrading to even cast a vote for person. Someone earlier in the chat said, well, would you vote for Marianne Williamson? I'm sorry. Would you vote for, um, ugh, uh, that's Freudian, Marjorie Taylor Greene, just because she wants to abolish the FBI? And I would say no. She, her, the, the whole world of what she believes in is so antithetical to what I believe in. And I don't trust her as a good faith actor, even on the FBI point. So no, I wouldn't. But I think it's also really disingenuous to compare someone like Marianne Williamson or RFK Jr. to someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I'm not saying I would vote for RFK Jr. I'm saying that a, a world in which we're foreclosing that possibility, you know, a week after he's announced his campaign without really knowing much about what he's up to, and there being some evidence that he's up to some good things, some pretty good things, is premature. But you kept you kept asking Shama why can't the bar be lowered? Do you understand why it can't? Um, I I think it can be, but if you don't want it, if you don't, if you think that RFK Jr. is not someone you want to vote for, that's fine. If if you want to only vote for people who are as good as Bernie, like identical to Bernie on the issues or superior, that's fine. But me, I think that RFK Jr. is, from what we know so far about him, and so grain of salt but is actually better than Bernie on Russia, Ukraine and some of these foreign policy issues. He's higher than Bernie on some of those issues. He is higher than Bernie so far, at least to the extent that he's not carrying water for Biden in those ways, although we'll see. And so to me, I don't think it is lowering the bar or at very least, I think it's up in the air and we have to learn more about the candidate before we make those kind of decisions. I'm what I'm saying is despite the candidate, forget the candidates. The bar cannot be lowered. I mean, okay, if that's how you feel, I feel differently. I mean, I, I, I would but, vote for a, lo- a lot of people in a primary. I might, even, I might even say vote for Elizabeth Warren in a Democratic primary. If it's, uh, but but Warren and, if, if it's Warren and Biden, hey, it's no skin off my back. Other people have more difficult voting situations, but it's no skin off my back to waltz down to the to the elementary school and cast my ballot because, you know, I want to, I want to send a message that I prefer a candidate that at least purports to back Medicare for all and student debt cancellation over someone like Biden. And I I respect if you feel differently, but it seems to me that I can get something out of registering that as opposed to sitting out of the primary. So I would just do that. Um, But I guess what I'm getting at 
is you kind of don't understand what Sharma is saying. No, I think I do. I think that people are allowed to disagree, though. And we disagree. Yeah, but, um, okay, yeah, I, you and I will always disagree, <laughs> unfortunately. But what I'm trying to say, so, like, the, the people that Bernie himself, all on his own, that he resonated with, people, that bar will never be lowered. Because the people that he resonated with are people who don't vote. People who work every fucking day for 14 days in a row and then have a vacation day. You know, like the people like you're totally disregarding the people that Shama's working for. Like, how am I doing that? (laughs) Because you can't copy and paste a feeling of resonation that cannot be lowered. Well, what, what do you mean? I'm, like, I, I think I'm misunderstanding. Like he's like, he spoke to people who have never voted. He's the people he spoke to are not your people that make over 60,000 a year. The, the people he spoke to are the people that never freaking vote. You know, it's just like, but, but, but I'm I'm sorry, Hannah. Who who do you know? How do you know who RFK is speaking to right now? I'm not talking about RFK. I am. I'm talking about Bernie. The bar is at Bernie. Right, but you're setting the bar, and you're saying that you don't think either of the candidates who have announced so far on the Democratic Party ticket meet that bar, right? Isn't that what we're talking about? Yeah. And I'm right. So we are implicitly talking about RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson. So focusing on an RFK for a minute, what I'm what I know so far, and it's not much. He just announced a week ago. We didn't know much when Ber- a week after Bernie announced in 2016, right, or 2015. But what I do know is Sabby Sabs and and David uh, Dave Weigel. I've spoken to them both. They both were on the ground for his announcement and reported that it was a very packed room with people across the ideological spectrum who seemed to be have working class backgrounds that there were two overflow rooms savvy reported that there seemed to be genuine excitement. The crossover appeal on shows like Tucker Carlson seems evident to me. Those shows didn't those Fox shows tend to have more of a working class base as well. You know, so there's some evidence here to me that there might be, and also, also obviously him pulling up 14% of Biden voters. There is some evidence that he might actually have captured some working class movement energy in the way that Bernie did. I don't know that to be true for sure. We'll see. But I don't know why everyone seems so confident that that isn't the case. It won't be as big. Okay. But are you Nostradamus? Because I don't know how you can say that. I can say it because I walk the streets with everyday people. Okay. And honestly, no one gives, no one cares about the anti-vax. Like, if you just... Everyday people, the poorest parts of every single town, no one gives a shit. I mean, you're saying no one gives a shit about the anti-vax? Yeah, the fact that he's anti-vax. Like, that's not gonna... Like, well, I think I agree with that. I, mean, I don't, I don't know your... which way you mean that. If you mean it that nobody is going to hold it against him, I think I agree with that. Like, a lot of people either agree with him on the COVID policies and don't care about the autism stuff or agree with him about the autism stuff. I think there's a lot 
you know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the disqualifier that I think the mainstream media thinks it is. Is that the way you mean it? Or do you mean that nobody wants to vote for him because of the anti-vax stuff? Cause they're indifferent to it. I think they're indifferent and they probably, it'll help him. Yeah. I think it'll, him. I think it'll help him too. So what's, so what I'm hearing is that you think that among the working class people that you know, that that's not, that's not going to be, um, a, a, an albatross around his neck that's not going to hurt his campaign. So it sounds to me like you agree with me that there might be some working class buy-in on some of these issues. Not as large as Bernie, though. No. Well, I we'll don't see. Think... But if it were 75% as large as Bernie, would that be significant to you? Or does it have to be literally equally as large as or bigger than Bernie's for it to be relevant? Um. He has to be bigger than Bernie. Like it's it's not gonna work, dude. Like, um, okay. Well, look. Anyway, if you if you want to like not participate in in primaries, that's I don't I don't mean that judgmentally. Like I'm just describing the fact. If you want to, if you choose not to participate in primaries until someone better than Bernie Sanders comes along, that's a position. It's yours, and you can act on it. I'm not gonna force you. I cannot force you to do anything differently. Me. The primary is happening, whether I participate in it or not. So I don't know who wins by me not participating in it. So I'm going to participate in it. And, and I'm you, going to try to rig the Democratic it. primary in my favor. And you preach it. Yes, I, I preach that this is what I'm choosing to do. I'm explaining my rationale. And if other people agree with me, I think that's great. If people don't agree with me, then they don't have to do it. But you don't you don't say that in your interviews. I don't say what in you, my interviews. You're... In, in this interview today, you were trying so hard to get Shama to pick a lesser evil. I'm sorry you felt it that way. I thought I said repeatedly that she doesn't have to agree with me, but that I'm going to articulate my position on it. And that I wanted to better understand her position because, frankly, aspects of it don't really make a lot of sense to me. But, you know, if, if you saw that as me strong-arming Shama... I'm sorry you felt that way. I don't think that she felt that way. We have a very good relationship and we really appreciate being able to have dialogues like that with each other. But, and I think she's a very strong, forceful and persuasive person who can kind of stand up to some pushback. I think it really helps both of us to understand where we're coming from, to be able to go back and forth and, and contest and like compare and contrast our ideas in that way. But if you felt that that was unfair to Shama or, or something like that, then I'm, I'm sorry you felt that way. Okay, so I have an, another a new new question. So let's say a random person become is a I'm just going to pick a random name, not a real candidate, Ben. Ben is in between RFK and Marianne. Somehow wins the primary, somehow wins democratic election. We we get another dem 2024. And they you know, they're, you know, anti-war, but whatever. What what do you think will happen? What do you mean, what do you think will happen? After somebody, someone in between the same policies, same, you know, the same intentions, but in between RFK and Marianne, what do you think would happen? I, I mean, a lot of, I, I mean, that that's a very open-ended question. What do you think would happen in the election? The election no. results after after the election has won, it goes. You're saying the Democratic candidate who's somewhere between Marion and RFK wins, and their name is Ben. 
Let's say they win and they're a Democrat. What happens? What should the left do? What happens to the left? What happens to whom? To everything. Well, if they're sincerely between Mary, Marianne and RFK, I have to look harder at what RFK Jr. that says about stuff like student debt. But he, I know, has said that he believes Biden is failing to use executive orders, that there's so much that a president can do with executive authority and that he wouldn't hesitate to do that. So what I would hope is that Ben would do a lot of stuff day one that Biden should have done day one. Um, he might grant uh, health care to the people of East Palestine. He might. Uh, extend the student loan. Um, do you think that though actually the Democratic Democrats would actually let them do that? Do you think they'll what, be successful in all of their whatever with executive orders to do? Whatever I mean, I think that's kind of do. the beauty of executive orders is that there's not a ton they can do to stop them. But yeah, I mean, I mean, this is a fictional person, so it's hard for me to say. But you but, think you think a president willing to use their executive orders will be successful? Well, that's not the question you asked me. In your hypothetical, the person's already won. Yeah. So they've won. They have every, they, they're, whatever. So they're president. They so yeah, if they're yeah. president, they can do executive orders. Alternatively, maybe they'll get assassinated. But, but that's but what, what those are what, that's what can happen. This is what I'm saying. This happens. We vote, we vote someone in and they never do what they're going to say they're going to do. And everything stays the cha- same. Same, nothing. So, why was Bernie? If you believe that so confidently, why was Bernie different? So, Bernie's situation led me to this confidence. There's no hope in the DNC party. So, why why aren't we talking about other options? Like, what is it like? Like, what is it like if we write in someone? Someone does all the paperwork, and then somehow, like. We write them in. Like, why does the nomenclature have to stay around the DNC and the and the Republican Party? Why not change I, the nomenclature? I mean, we we talked a little bit about the rules and ballot access before. If someone wants to run a left candidate in the general election and they can figure out how to get on the ballot, I fully yeah, support. We that. don't need a we don't need a candidate, but we need people to know of other options. Why keep reiterating the same? things that keep putting us in the same hole. Hannah, if you if you have a plan, I'm happy to say yes and to that plan. But you can't just shit on somebody else's plan when you don't actually have a plan. All I know, look, I would love for someone to come up with stuff, but all I know is that whatever happens, there's going to be a Democratic primary. So I'm talking about how to exploit that to my benefit. If you have some other plan that you want people to do in the election context, hey, I'd love to hear more details about it and I'll probably support it. So I don't I don't really understand what the disconnect is. I I'm what I'm saying is I think instead of waiting for people just use your platform and change the nomenclature already. I, I'm not exactly sure what it means to change the nomenclature, Hannah, but if you have some more specifics or someone I should have on to talk about alternative plans that you've heard, I'd be happy to have them on and talk it through. Like one example would be like Stop using the word left. Like in on rising, if we brought up, well, maybe there is actually no left. The left are people, everyday people on the streets. What if you brought up that conversation? I mean, I think that's fine. And that's an interesting, you know, rhetorical strategy choice. But I'm not entirely sure what that has to do with 
the question of how to maximize the the Democratic primary for left goals? That's not the goal. That's not my goal. That's your goal. Okay, so can those things happen at the same time? Why do you feel the need to shit on my goal? I'm happy to do your goal. I'm happy to do all of the things. I don't really see how those are at odds with each other. Because your goal will put us back in the same hole. How? How will me voting for someone that's not named Joe Biden in the Democratic primary make it impossible for me to experiment with different language on rising? Constantly talking about the Democratic primary. Okay, well, I hate to break it to everyone, but the Democratic primary, again, is happening regardless of whether or not I talk about it. It's yeah. that is beyond me and my powers. It's happening. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But you can talk about other things. You don't have to talk about it. Uh, okay. Well, I, I, I think that there's political adv- advantages to using it to our advantage. But if you don't want to talk about it and if you want to, like, check out episodes where I'm talking about it, I also respect that choice. I, I really, just really hope, just... I challenge you to bring up the left conversation, that there is no left. If you challenge other media to stop saying the left because it doesn't exist, I'm just curious to see what would happen. All right. Well, I'll give that some thought. I may see socialist pizza saying the Republican Party is happening, but I don't want to use that to my advantage. I, I don't. If you If you are a registered Republican or you live in a state where you think it's, you know, you see, you see the Republican options and you would rather try to rig the Republican Party in a way that benefits the left. I think that's perfectly legitimate, too. I, I think absolutely that p- people should vote in their primaries to try to tee up the general election contest that works in their favor for whatever reason. So, you know, I, I support all those things. I'm not the one shooting down people's ideas here. I want to be really clear. I'm not the one shooting on anybody's ideas. I'm I'm letting many flowers bloom. I'm yes anding stuff and begging people to come up with more ideas. But I think it's really interesting that in the absence of those alternative ideas, there's a lot of negativity. That's all I say about that. Charlie, what's on your mind? Hey, where you can hear me? Yes, loud and clear. Oh my God, things actually work. It's amazing. <laughs> um, it is so good to talk to you. It's so hard to get through these cues, but the conversations are just incredible. And so uh, I have been itching to chat with you for like three or four call-ins so if you oh good i'm glad you made it through i know it's a little sporadic for those of you who are new i do one person from the front and then one person from randomly in the mix and then back to the front and then randomly in the mix sometimes that means that you're kind of close to the front and never get called (laughs) on sometimes that means you hit you get lucky even though you're in the very back so oh totally and that, that seems fairly equitable so no worries at all um but yeah, so I'm going to throw a grab bag at you here. Um, first off, not to take you too far back, I know you already did two episodes on this, um, but your call-in shows on you know the trans women in sports and just kind of the general thing—it was just incredible. Like you deserve like a Nobel Peace Prize for that. <laughs> you know, I am not, frankly, someone of the left. As I said the last time I called in, I, I you know I'm kind of nothing. I don't know heterodox, whatever. Um, and I will say, uh, you know, I think a lot of us in the whatever quote-unquote heterodox space have sort of been where you got to for a long time so on the one hand it sort of feels like good lord guys like how did it take this long but regardless it was it was just amazing the way you approached it amazing the way you had the conversation 
I do think, you know, that same week, Bill Maher had, um, what was it, Katie Porter on and Pierce Morgan. I don't know if you saw any of that and, and this, this exact yeah, issue Yeah, I up. saw some clips. Yeah, it wasn't great. I mean, honestly, I was, I was a little disappointed in Katie Porter on that one. But um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think that I suspect I have been in positions like that where I because I'm so and I've talked about this, I think, on some of those Collins. Yeah. I was so kind of triggered by what I perceived to be the bad faith of the person I was talking to that I kind of retreated to a position that I don't like even fully believe in, but felt necessary um, to push back. Like I didn't want to agree with someone on one on issue one, because I felt like issue two was so abhorrent that I didn't want to seem like I was tacitly endorsing their position on the matter. So I, I suspect that that Katie Porter Porter kind of had a reactionary response to being in a kind of conservative environment, and might not even take those positions. Did she give her, gave herself gave it some thought and reevaluated how that appearance came off? I buy that totally, and I actually thought about that as I was watching it. But I think I think that's kind of where a lot of folks on the whatever you want to call it, the center left have been, where it's just it's the reaction against the reactionaries, and and you never get to the point that you got to. And and what I always want to do with this is I, I really just want to jump through the screen and say the elephant in the room is biological sex. Uh, you're calling it you know dimorphism, you know whatever you want to call it. Um, it's like there. I think part of this is a language problem. Um, we, you know, we use the word woman when we mean gender, when we mean female, when we, you know, our language has sort of conflated all these things over the centuries. And you know, part of the challenge here maybe is pulling those things apart. But instead of pulling them apart, it seems that that some activists and I, I love seeing in your chat and everything on the Collins that a lot of people are like, look, this ain't us. Like, this is not actually representative of wide swaths of the trans community. I don't know. We call it like the very online activist aspect of it, but they do seem to want to conflate gender identity with sex, or at least say that gender identity trumps sex in every single situation. And if you think otherwise. You're a phobe, bigot, etc. I'll pause. You're gonna say something. No, no, no. I just want to give credit to the members of this community for doing so much of the work in those conversations, and the trans members yeah. of this community in particular for kind of leading the conversation in a lot of ways. Because I do look. I did, this is where I do empathize with Katie Porter. Like my understanding has been that so many folks who are kind of, for lack of a better word, bad faith bandy about terms like biological sex in a way that is intended to undermine the gender identity, and I'm saying that purposefully, of trans women. So they'll say, well, but your biological sex is a man, but you're born a man, but you're a man, you know, and so that those words have gotten stigmatized. So now if we live in a space where we can't, you know, where it's stigmatized to make reference to biological sex because it's, pre it's presumed that saying those words is an attack on someone's gender identity and their identity as a trans woman, then we are, you're right, left without the language to describe what the terms trans and cis are supposed to describe and which they describe so well. Trans women aren't trying to be cis women or like lie about being cis women. They're trans women and there's pride and beauty and a unique experience and all of that. But I also like really respect and appreciate why people are sensitive about using language that has in fact been weaponized in certain ways. And like in this space, what it felt like was there was enough trust 
that we could start saying words like biological sex or, you know, stuff like that, knowing that it's not intended to cause hurt, but to try to get at the bottom of a phenomenon, like a, a, a physical rationale, a biological rationale for why we have sex segregated sports and, and to begin with. And once we got there, we were able to have a really open, productive conversation. I don't know how to expand that beyond this space. Um, I heard you try on rising. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I've, you know, I got, I got confidence from being here, <laughs> but you know, it's like baby steps. Yeah, no, 100%. So anyway, I don't want to belabor that one, but I did have on the Clarence Thomas thing. So this was really interesting. Did you, because you went to Harvard Law, right? Mm-hmm. So did you have Randall Kennedy as a, as a prof? I did. Oh, I would love to hear your thoughts. I read his book, Race, Crime, and the Law, in my con law. I was a pre-law, and then I met all the uh, other pre-law kids and was like, screw this law school thing. <laughs> Didn't mean you, though. Yeah, That's... the people are the worst part. Um, yeah, I had yeah. them three a year for a class called race something and something race yes race something so his, oh it's just called race sure. i think actually that sounds right yeah so he, he has a newer book out called say it loud that's like a collection of his essays i mm. highly highly recommend it um and he has an entire chapter literally called why clarence thomas ought to be ostracized and actually the central vehicle he uses to talk about this is um your guest uh robin cory robin's book he actually oh really yeah, and, uh, you know, he doesn't lambast Corey or anything, but he, he basically accuses Corey of being way overtly generous and, and credulous. Uh, That's funny. And, and sort of treating treating Thomas as having way better faith than he actually does. Interesting. That's interesting. You know, look, I'll say this. I think that a lot of black folks really hate black Republicans, like, more than they hate white Republicans. They see it as kind of a betrayal. And I don't, I'm not trying to reduce Randall Kennedy's response to this. But there's a kind of emotionality when a lot of black folks talk about black Republicans that doesn't exist in other spaces. And I'm not interested in like saying that Clarence Thomas is a good faith actor, but I do think that there is a lot of overstepping in terms of like not allowing black, not, not accepting that black Republicans can have any agency or that something is driving their politics other than self-hatred or like one in white women or something like that. I think that's like really reductive. A thousand percent. And the the, the, the bit I've read of Kennedy, I think he'd agree with your statement. Like, I like, I don't think he's actually in that camp. Okay. Well, I haven't. Yeah, I don't know what Randall Kennedy has said about this, but um, you know, it was interesting. I found aspects of his class to be frustrating. I'm not gonna lie. I think that he he uh, it's funny when people talk about like how sensitive college kids are and how much people protect liberals and leftists and class and stuff. My experience in his class um, was uh, a lot of people saying racist shit all the time, <laughs> to be honest, and him just letting it go and everyone just, like, said racist shit. Um, wow. And it was like, oh, God, I wish I could remember. I definitely took notes on this at some point. I ended up writing a paper for him. I was, like, one credit shy of graduation, so I wrote this bonus paper for an extra credit in his class. And it ended up being kind of a an anthology of all of the ways that race is central to law school pedagogy and how poorly it is taught because most classes aren't about race, but race is driving so much of the law. So if we're talking about mm-hmm. con law for obvious reasons, 14th amendment, it's like all race stuff. 
not all, but a lot, a lot of race stuff. You're talking about property law. You're talking about restrictive covenants and the right to exclude and who can you keep out of your store and um, the raisin in the sun case. And there's like, there's race native American land rights. There's like race all the way through it. If you're talking about criminal law, like race, 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 uh, is it a provocation? If someone calls you the N word, like it's race and you know, so like you can't get away with it, away from it, especially one a year. And so many professors are visibly uncomfortable talking about race or they don't provide you any broader context when talking about race. So anyway, I ended up writing this paper that was basically like a, 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 a um, an anthology, an annex, an, an index rather of all of the uh, racist stuff that happened in law school, <laughs> which I have somewhere. So I'll never forget. And maybe I made some references to um, what happened in that class, but it was a wild, wild West. And I remember feeling like I appreciated him opening up the classroom to some stuff, but I felt like he never, he, like he never put his thumb on the scale. Like he never said what he believed. He never indicated that there was like a bad argument or he never pushed back against people's arguments like ever. And sometimes I wondered if people were coming away from that class with anything other than like trauma. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, at first I was going to say that sounds like my con law professor who had me read Kennedy's book. He was this old Bostonian guy, but, uh, but he just, he just straight like barked both sides of the arguments at people and like made people respond. And mm. you could, so you could never really tell exactly where, you know, his personal politics were coming from, but he really made, he made you understand and defend against, you know, both sides of, of any argument. No, this wasn't like that. This was like, I remember, so I remember once we had this conversation about um, charity and whether charity could be a substitute for social programs Sure. And, you know, I have my leftist feelings about that. Even then, I didn't, I couldn't, I didn't articulate it as well as the socials, you know, but I, you know, it was obvious to me that relying on individual rich people's proclivities was not going to get the redistrib- redistributional support that, you know, less sympathetic communities need and all this kind of stuff. But I remember he brought it up in class and at no point did he raise that point. And it was up to other people in class to get their hands raised and be called on and to offer that pushback. I remember not getting called on that day. That point was never made. And I was like, well, why bring this up if you weren't needing people to understand both sides of that argument? And there was another day we talked about a case. Sorry? Oh, sorry. It's the obvious point to make, too. Right. No one made it. And there was a case. One day we were talking about, like, um, cross-racial adoptions. And the idea of some black people objecting to it, I mean, I think there was a case that someone was objecting to it on the race, on the basis that there was trauma that was the child was going to be exposed to. The idea of like people of color objecting to cross-racial adoptions was kind of put out there as, you know, racist, like, you know, like a like rooted in prejudice as opposed to, well, should we be making an effort to place people with people of their own ethnic background, given the, this, these studies about how so how folks socialize in environments other than their own race and what can be done to mitigate those bad social outcomes and blah, 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 blah. And it was just like, yes, yeah, some black person is sitting there racistly being like, Oh, white people can't raise my children without there being any of the broader context. And you can feel how you want to feel about it, but like not offering up the context for why people might object to it at all. I felt was like kind of irresponsible. Those are just the two examples I remember from, you know, 15 years ago off the top of my head. Yeah, 10 years uh, ago. How old am I? Shit. Don't do this. Twelve years ago, <laughs> I yeah. do this in grad school too. It's not pretty. We're the same age. So. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, so let me get to something a little spicier from today's episode that I, w- I will say. And, and again, it's like I'm not coming from a leftist standpoint, certainly no conservative either. But I, I do, you know, especially in talking about the the renter stuff and renters rights and landlords and, and you know, up front. I mean, the examples she was giving were obviously egregious and, and you know, terrible in terms of like the, the late fees and, and all that kind of stuff. But I do, you know, what frustrates me, let me put it this way, in the same way that I get frustrated and I've always been frustrated with Republicans, like, frame, it's these narratives, right? They frame business owners and businesses as like, well, we got to keep their taxes low because they're the virtuous job creators. And they have this, like, sort of Ayn Randian, like, view of, of like, business people and whatnot that is just, like, obviously over-idealized and ridiculous. But then there's like this mirror image on the left oftentimes I see that seems to believe that like all business is big business and is bad. And like that translates kind of over to the landlord tenant relationship, which it's like, yeah, there's BlackRock out. I mean, yes, there's corporate landlords, I'm sure. But there's like I've rented from teachers like I know people who are like nurses who are landlords. There's um, an article uh, I could put in the chat from um, Oakland, you know, where there's been, you know, the COVID uh, eviction moratorium. And it's literally like this, like lower middle class black guy living in his own duplex and renting out the bottom part who's like about to lose everything because he hasn't been paid <laughs> in years and years and years. So it's it's that, that the overly simplistic narrative framing that I felt was really coming through in that conversation that that really just it turns me off to. The left, I mean, these things turn me off on either side when there are these narratives that are just kind of dug in and overly simplistic. But um, but I just, I really noticed that and it kind of irked me. I, I, I will say relative to your last caller, I'm probably on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of how I feel about your guest. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that I think that Shaw actually did make a distinction between kind of big corporate landlords and smaller landlords. I mean, she made reference to one small landlord that was advocating in support of her in the movement to limit um, late fees, right? She, I remember her specifically bringing up a small landlord that agreed with her about the rental fee issue. So, I, I, sure, I, but is that is that any better than like, well, I'm not racist. Look at my black friend. I mean, I, I don't mean to. Well, no, but, because know, this, is like a, this is anecdotally one person. Well, no, this yeah, is a sorry. structural critique, right? Like, I'm not the best mm-hmm. housing authority here, and we could go back and listen to episodes with Sia Weaver and other people who can speak to these things better. But one, if you believe that housing is a human right, that some people should have access to to, to some kind of shelter, and especially in the richest country in the history of the world. And two, you understand that these corporate landlords, especially in the context of COVID, bought up all this empty housing, holding it empty to use as rental property to squeeze it for maximum profit as opposed to making it available to people for people to live in. Then you see landlording not as a way to build your personal wealth, which is also kind of a suspect pyramid scheme, but that's a different conversation. You don't see it as the mom and pop who has somebody living in their basement for supplemental income. It really is a zero-sum game in which corporate landlords are directly creating the housing insecurity that's forcing people to be homeless and live in shelters and live on the street and things like that or live in substandard housing, etc. So this isn't like... I hate you because you're rich. I mean, I would argue that there are zero-sum games and trade-offs with with extreme wealth and that Jeff Bezos is able to be so rich because he's 
squeezing profits out of the poor. But this isn't just a, oh, I I hate my neighbor who makes $400,000 a year generalized, like, eat the rich sentiment. This is I'm making a structural critique of a system that by design limits housing access for 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 working people. So it's not I just hate you because you have money or I hate you because you have two houses or a hundred houses or a thousand houses and I have none. It's the the way that we have structured our laws and structured our society are 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 causing these really horrific results downstream. And that 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 structural critique then therefore because it's a structural critique does really exclude mom and pop landlords Whoever is renting out their basement apartment, I don't think Shama or most leftists have heat for those people because the we're not mad at individuals who own houses. You're mad at these structural forces, the black rocks of the world, and the fact that we have an economic system that's telling middle class and working class people that your way, your ticket up the ladder is this pyramid scheme that is the housing market, which was a bad yeah, choice I mean- to begin with, I would argue. Sure. Like that seems fair. I think, I think what I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that like, sure, you're not, they're not throwing heat at the mom and pops fine. But the problem is like when the heat turns into policy and I live in California in the Bay area, right? So this is like as blue as it gets. And like when that heat and activism turns into actual policy, there generally, there's oftentimes no distinguishing between the sort of mom and pops and the the black rocks of the world. And I don't just mean on property stuff, but in businesses, right? I mean, the there is a presumption in these deep blue places that employees are always on the right side and there's no such thing as a bad faith employee who's, who's just kind of trying to milk it. Um, and there's no such thing as an employer who is actually acting in good faith and trying to, like, for example, fire someone who's just being a really bad employee. It's these vibes that, that, that and again, the right has theirs too. So I'm not, I'm not like saying the right's got anything better over here. But like the left kind of operates on these vibes sometimes and makes policy on these vibes that assume and envision a world that, that is not quite accurate on the ground and ends up impacting those mom and pops, whether they be businesses or landlords or whatever. Um, well, look, I, I think that it's better to be right? specific because there's a way that your lack of specificity can turn into vibes right, too, right? Shama specifically was advocating for a policy that capped late fees at $10. That's not vibes. That's a specific oh, policy. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I, but, totally but wait a minute, but wait a minute. Yeah. And importantly, she referenced some basis for that policy. Not that tenants should just be allowed to not pay or that, you know, landlords don't have some right to be paid for their investment or whatever, but that studies show that increasing late fees does nothing to encourage on-time payments. And in fact, what is compelling people to pay their rent is the threat of eviction, not the threat of late fees. So the late fees themselves are a predatory intermediate step that is not well tailored to the goal of actually protecting the landlord. It's just another squeeze that landlords can use to get more money out of tenants, right? So I'm hearing a lot of specifics from Shama there and not a lot of vibes. And while I understand what you're saying about how we can rhetorically perhaps use broad statements about the rights of some people and, you know, eat the rich and things like that, I think we it's because we live in a world where overwhelmingly public perception and the bias swings in the other direction, right? You, you say that there's this the left thinks that there's no such thing as a bad worker. Well, we live in a in a in a world in a Protestant um, Calvinist country 
where we think everyone needs to work hard. If you get fired, it's your own fault. You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and every other path- pathological piece of propaganda that we've been told from the time that we were kids. So yeah, if a few leftists want to say, you know, you know, a cab or then there's no such thing as a good boss, you know, when all of the labor laws have been undermined to limit protections that workers have on all of the rest, I got to say, it doesn't bother me so much. I might advise someone in a rhetorical, you know, if I was a rhetorical strategy, depending on who they're engaging with to moderate their language somewhat and try to be more fact-based and truthful so that they can be more persuasive. But I just, I don't know. I have a hard time being that upset about folks who are trying to use broad, persuasive, emotive language to make people feel like, yeah, we're all on the same team. There are a lot of us renters. There, most of us are not landlords. Most of us, I mean, most of us may be homeowners, but most of us are not landlords. And so, you know, if anything, landlords should be in the ones on their P's and Q's trying to use sensitive language and appeal to us because we are the majority. We are the 99%. No? Interesting. Um, well, it, it, what you said is what I said is factually true. It's just it's it's like a very power based argument. So sure. Um, yeah. And again, though, it's it's so beyond the rhetoric. It's again, when you live in these places where it's one thing if you have activism and then you have like pushback because it's like, well, you're going to kind of meet in some sort of center. And so you have to kind of like do the real strong rhetoric. But when you you know, when it's like the Bay Area, California, um, and, you know, the pushback is from, quote unquote, moderate Dems who, who are I'm not trying to say that they're like as left as like, you know, this audience would want to be. But it does result in it. Look, my wife's in HR, right? Like she spends pretty much at least half of her time just trying, like basically not allowing managers to fire bad employees because they will get sued. Like California is an alleged right to work state. And yet, I mean, they like employers effectively feel like they cannot fight so healthy, especially if they're over 40 or of a, you know, given demographic, um, I just think if you talk to anyone who actually has to like work in these companies or, or be a small business dealing with these types of rules and regulations that we have in these super blue areas, uh, that pendulum's not in the right place. It just isn't. Um, and it, it well, I'd like to see some specifics. I'd like to see some specifics because I know a lot of people who have a, a lot of pushback for folks who claim that they are bad employees and they don't work hard. People feel like they weren't given development opportunities because well, they were can not. Can we agree that it's case by case? I guess. Yeah, sure. I it's mean, case like, by it's case. Like... And if I, I got to yeah. say, if the, if the posture of the situation is that people have to build a case before they fire someone, that they should have to prove that they actually are a bad employee, that they aren't meeting work targets before they fire them. It's hard for me to see that as a bad thing. Oh, yeah, no, totally. And if totally. it's ambiguous, Although, but, then but maybe they should the, consider the firing. Well, but the burden of proof is what does get, I mean, it gets really, really tricky. I don't know. It's, it, it gets into the weeds. I think, like, if <laughs> a presumption of case by case as opposed to a presumption of bad faith on But it is case it by is case. I want it. It's case by case. Sure, sure. If, if you have a really bad employee, you can write down they didn't come to work on time. They didn't fulfill their monthly targets on whatever it is the job is. They were rude to customers. We had these number of complaints. You you can prove if a, if a person – it's not like someone's clocking in at work three hours late every day and you're getting sued when you fire them. Like that that's not the scenario. 
If you can prove that they were a bad employee, you can prove that they're a bad employee. Now, if you also sexually harass them and they were late every day, that's all you problem. You shouldn't have sexually harassed a bad employee. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that you're going to have to pay out on that one, buddy. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I don't want to. Sure, sure, sure. I, you know, I, I'm going to let it go to a large extent. I don't want to debate it all night. I um, want to let someone else maybe get the, get the mic here. But like uh, real quick thing. I know you're a sci-fi fan. If you haven't checked out The Expanse, you have to watch that show. It's got like class. Uh, everyone said and- it. I've put in some hard labor over, with the over a season of that show. I think it is unbearably dark and boring. Really? I gotta say, I don't get it. I think the protagonist Wait, with that weird. It? I'm sorry. How far did you go with it? Well over a season. That that guy with that weird bang over his face in that fedora is laughably uh, absurd. Thomas Jane. You don't like Thomas Jane. He yeah. is the least likable person I've ever seen on television. I don't know why I should care. I, every episode I log in and I hope he, that he's dead. We spent the entire first season hunting down that Asian woman who was supposed to be some ambassador's daughter or something. And then we find her and she's literally dead and is no longer relevant to the plot. And it's like, why do we just chase through the galaxy to find this girl? Who's covered with it's, like mushrooms and spores? You, you gotta get beyond the small stuff because it, it it expands. Okay, as it were, I, I as was a lot, interested it's, I in the promise it's worth it. The South Asian woman who's like the head of the UN or whatever. I'm intrigued by her. At least her costuming is nice for my eyes instead of all that cold blue steely space light that makes me want to fall asleep in two seconds. But there barely is any intrigue with her going on 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 Earth. With all of that, and the mother of the guy who also is uh, insufferable casting. He thinks he's so cute with the, the dark haired guy with the puppy dog eyes who thinks that everybody's in love with him, who's like the son of those the commune here. people on earth. I can't uh, stand him. Sure. I kind of like that butch black girl. She's kind of cool, but they don't give her enough to do. And for some reason, they made her in love with that tragically boring white guy. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? She, she becomes like absolutely central. Like, okay, she's cool. Out. Like, I like her, but they Naomi, just give Naomi her this weird love triangle. It's, I'm telling you, I put in, there's, there's a, they're hour long episodes and it's a long season. And I put in a lot of energy consuming this show. And I gotta say, I gotta I, catch up with Picard and I've got other things on my agenda. And I can't see myself well, spending any more time on the expanse. Don't, don't watch Picard. I totally I'm watching Picard on spending time on a show. No, it's garbage. It's absolute garbage. I'm watching Picard because I heard minutes. Wyatt Cenac and Josh Olsen told me that it's getting good <sighs> now and that I have to catch up. And I want to do not. another episode with the two of them. So I'm I'm do on it. the case. Do it, but it's not. We've I I came to season three for the same reason. All the critics I usually trust are like, no, it's getting good now, and it it it, it it's not. It's, it's okay. Not well, bad, I'll tell you but... what. 100 percent is not good. The Expanse. <laughs> I, you know, I, I wish if I could show you a synopsis of the actual whole plot, I think I, I'd change oh. your mind, but I get it. I get it. Like, I, I'm not, I, you know, I don't, I've been there where I've. Does that man cut that fine. stupid bang off the side of his face? He disappears after, well, he, he, yeah, he's not, he's not there beyond season two and a half. Okay. Like that, that helps because I cannot look at that man in that fedora. Helps. They make him look like a magician from 1994. I don't know what that choice was. I don't know. I don't understand it. I, I, like I said, I empathize, but you're wrong on this one. That should be amazing. (laughs) Okay. All right. Jonathan Cadman says that I'm correct. 
<laughs> Jonathan's uh, never right. <laughs> All right, Charlie. Thanks for being a good sport. Keep the faith. Thank you, Bree. Have a good one. All right. All right. I needed to go a while ago because my groceries got delivered and they've been sitting in the hallway. But can we do like a little rapid fire, Carolina boy? Bree, can you hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, yeah. Sorry, I don't know what happened earlier. I got I lost audio and got kicked out. Um, so I don't even know. Has anybody been talking much about the uh, the whole Tucker Carlson situation? Like, I haven't heard like much of it since like the last hour I've been on here. Yeah, we talked about it up top. What's your read? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things about this that are are kind of driving me crazy, and. The main thing is, like, I don't like this because I know that a lot of people are going to try to spin this into trying to make Tucker, like, this martyr that he was kicked off because he was speaking the truth about the war or, or in Ukraine or vaccines or whatever mm-hmm. bullshit. Yeah, I saw JFK and, Jun- RFK Jr. saying that. Yeah. And then, and, like, the other thing is I'm, I'm just, I'm, like, really sick of – Hello? You're really sick of this? Oh, he just connected himself again. All right, guys. You guys are, you know. Brady, I saw you say something about being solution-oriented, so maybe I'll bring you in as the cleanup crew as the last. Yes, we got through. I can make it so quick. I have three quick points that I think can solve so many of the problems we've run into tonight. The first one being the idea of a proxy party that anyone can start. Um, And the idea is just executing mutual aid projects through one-to-one direct, transparent, maybe digital democracy, completely outside of uh, government as a legitimate form of government to kind of show what government's capable of, if they Mm. actually work, you know, doing more like, um, you know, black Panthers school food programs and having brick and mortars and doing actual community, like kind of more permanent community work. Yes. Like imagine if all that Bernie Sanders money was turned into schools for children and free organic food for kids, free Mm -hmm. clean water for kids, you know, right off the bat, those are right at the top. So, Uh, universal basic needs are right at the top of the list. We want to take care of clean water, clean food, housing, um, electricity and communications, as well as healthcare. And I think those five things I think are easily achievable within like six months. We really just all put our heads to it. Um, It's not rocket science. We have the space, the resources, everything. This is, we've been led away from achieving these goals on purpose. You know, like Mm -hmm. all these distraction tactics we talk about the CIA trying to, promote helter skelter so that we can't focus on our mutual goals. And um, I think one of the really good ways to get around the debate issue that we're about to have is something called a proxy debate, where if someone doesn't show up to a debate, someone can pretend to be that person in place of them not showing up. And so we can host a debate with or without someone's consent, so to say. Uh, we can use chat GPT to do that. We could use AI yeah. to do that. Um, and we can also use actors to, you know, act it out. Thespians to act it out. That would be and fascinating, also, a chat GPT debate. Oh, yeah. Like posing as uh, Joe Biden or something like that. Would be, mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of fun. We've done it a couple times. It's a lot of fun. So if anyone Who's wants we? to see a proxy, 
oh, just a few of us on call in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I pretended to be someone and then I, pre- I pretended to be Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Uh, so I was playing both characters, basically debating myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a blast. We had a lot of fun doing it. And so if anyone wants to do it again, happy to host anytime. Um, and I also promote the idea of a vibe check for any potential candidate or any potential leader, any leadership at all. And that is submitting themselves to say like an, a lie detecting test and maybe even um, just answering a few questions from the most critical voice possible. Mm. And this should be done on a monthly basis by any leadership anywhere, whether it's political or professional. I think um, I think that all leadership should regularly submit themselves to a vibe check and a report on what's going on. I think at least once a month, um, like Joe Rogan style, three hour, you know, grilling session from the best. I love that. Uh, I mean, if everyone has to do it, there's it's like this feeling that, oh, I can't sit down for an interview because I'll be ruined. But if everyone does it, then everyone has equal chance of being ruined and everyone's going to take their licks and ultimately you're going to have to still pick from the limited, you know, crew. And people like Rokana, for better or for worse, demonstrate that you can kind of go out there and take your licks and, you know, the world doesn't end when Rokan is called out by stuff on these lefty news shows. I don't know. I just, I, I think that that it would be such a good, a good change for broader political health for people not to be so afraid that one gaffe, you know, one embarrassing moment will end your career and just to, to get in there and be willing to be exposed as wrong and have the opportunity to maybe even change your views. Yeah, I think nothing legitimizes leadership like a good vibe check. Like Marianne Williamson on RBN, I feel like that was kind of like her chance to really kind of submit herself to a vibe check, and she kind of ran away from the table. So I think what it does is it scares the wrong people away from leadership. And I think the right people will have no fear whatsoever of answering some questions, you know, or um, even submitting to a lie detecting test after a few shots or something like that. Well, I uh, know the science of no, life isn't great, but generally speaking, I, I, I like, I certainly like the idea of more uh, media access and tough questions and not just um, kind of access journalism. With the advent of AI technology and infrared cameras, we can actually uh, get pretty dang close to detecting lies. And it makes like a cool predator vision of someone. And I think it would be, Cool if we also had that directed at Congress at all times, like a open source community run C-SPAN that had AI lie detecting cameras pointed at all elected officials while they're mm. conducting business. <laughs> Again, I'm uh, not with you on the lie detecting stuff, uh, but no generally crazy. speaking, fun idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I have to I have to think more about how that AI stuff works, but. Um, you know, there have been uh, moments where people haven't shown up for debates. I think AOC uh, ended up debating an empty chair once when Joe Crowley didn't show up. You know, things like this happen. And and I really do hope that somebody puts on a high-profile debate with the non-Joe Biden Democratic Party candidates because people deserve to hear more. I mean, obviously, I know any number of left outlets that would be happy to host it, myself included, but I would really like to see it get some – cable news traction to be honest so it gets the biggest audience as possible so yeah i'm 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 with you on that i appreciate you calling in brady with some proactive suggestions yeah even if we don't win we still would have a network of mutual aid support for things like a general strike 
Um, so beyond ballot access or even winning an election, just a network that we could use for achieving mutual aid would be beneficial. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Brady. Thank you to all of you. I'm going to wrap it up because I also have to close my rings. This has been a great call. Pretty full room. They've been lighter of late. I feel like Colin's kind of giving up <laughs> on the project. They took away my ability to post the things to Instagram, which was a good way to promote it. You know, I, I get I get the vibes that they're kind of <laughs> over this project. We'll see how long it lasts. But it's nice to see a lot of people in this room. Don't forget to share. I don't know if you're still allowed to clip. That was another great function that they took away. But if you can clip the video and put them on social media and stuff, that's great. So thanks again. Take care of yourselves. Keep the faith. Wish I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can holler at us and travel with portable speakers and bother us scans. Wish I had a million pounds. I wish I had a million problems. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all a million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them shit like Beaver Man. I wish I was a comedian. Make nice sitcoms syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are spending all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish the help was like. I wish, I wish. Every time we drive in, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. Every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. I wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lime.